This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 82. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton, and on this episode of the podcast, Lum and I actually got to sit down to interview the one and only Jason Thompson, uh, the former senior editor of the North American print Shonen Jump that was published by Viz Media from 2002 to 2012. So, not the key player, but definitely one of the key players in uh, bringing Shonen Jump over here to North America. You'll you'll get to hear in just a second about uh, some of the other people uh, behind Shonen Jump here, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, along with uh, just a lot of different experiences that uh, Jason has had uh, in working with uh, Viz and Shonen Jump, which, uh, you know, Lum and I thought were really, really cool, just... Everything from the different manga artists he's met uh, down to, you know, his uh, crazy, wacky editing stories uh, of Shonen Jump. You know, the artists having to redraw things and just just a whole bunch of really crazy, cool stuff that I'm sure that, uh, you know, you guys are excited to uh, to listen about. Um, obviously, this is coming off from our... Uh, uh, so this is sort of a continuation of uh, our Shonen Jump interviews that we uh, had put up back in December of last year. Um, you know, we we also mentioned on that podcast that uh, we were going to be interviewing Jason, and uh, now it's finally here. We finally got to do that a couple weeks back, and uh, now you guys are finally going to get to listen to it. Um, I don't think I have anything to talk about at the top of the show here, but basically whatever podcast stuff that uh, I probably need to talk about i can just say for the end of the show so without further ado uh let's just dive right in to our interview with jason thompson i cannot wait for you guys to listen to this i sincerely hope you enjoy it In 2003, Viz's Shonen Jump brought the famous manga magazine to North American shores for the first time, carrying on its decades-long legacy. The welcome blurb on the very first page of the very first issue proclaimed that Jump is the future of manga. The original print Shonen Jump was a trailblazer, and indeed, 16 years later, well, actually 18 years later, the brand continues to be no longer constrained within the confines of a magazine. Virtually all of Shonen Jump's titles are now being simul-published worldwide in English and Spanish through Riz's Shonen Jump app and Shueisha's Manga Plus app. The future is now, which makes it all the more interesting to take a look back at the past to the original print Shonen Jump where it first started, and joining us here today to discuss the secret origins and history of how Shonen Jump was brought to North America is none other than its very first editor, Jason Thompson, manga editor and writer extraordinaire, famous for editing series including practically the entire starting lineup of Shonen Jump, including Dragon Ball, One Piece, Naruto, Yu-Gi-Oh! Shaman King, as well as for writing manga, The Complete Guide, a regular contributor to ANN and Otaku USA, and the of several manga-inspired comics like The Stiff and King of RPGs. He also created a manga-inspired board game called Mangaka and made a cameo in the fairy tale manga. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lum. Thank you, Colton. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to have you. Your work, both on manga and your writing, has been a huge part in uh, how I got into manga. 
I remember first reading your column on ANN like 10 years ago, and that was a huge part in expanding my horizons and seeking out different series. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a fun column to write. Yeah, that was that was that was definitely a very interesting column to read every once in a while. There, um, I didn't know that last part. Uh, I didn't know you were a, a, a cameo in Fairy Tale. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Okay, yeah, that's kind of bizarre that happened, and it, I, it's not something I would have ever expected. But basically, uh, it was two thousand nine, and I was doing an interview with Hiro Mashima. Uh, at San Diego Comic-Con, because I believe that it was that year that he came over as a guest of Kodansha. Um, or was, I think it was still Del Rey at the time. So, uh, yeah, I came I came there and uh, I made such an impression as an interviewer that he made me into a character in the story. But I think it's just because I, th- I kept saying cool. I said cool a lot. Um, <laughs> honestly, I probably should have prepared better for the interview. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm glad that I uh, you know I'm glad that he was inspired. Um, but you know he does that because also Dallas Middaw, who was his editor at uh, Del Rey for a time, also showed up as a character in Fairy Tale. Huh. That's that's interesting. That's really awesome. And the character you inspired in Fairy Tale does say cool a lot. <laughs> I, I as do I. So in that way, he he has me down. He got me. For those of you who want to check out uh, Jason's cameo in Fairytale, this character appears in chapter 104 of the manga and episode 49 of the anime. Oh, so 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 you're technically an anime character then. That's pretty that's pretty amazing. Played by Yuki Ono in Japanese. If I can only show up in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, then I, I'll really have made it. <laughs> That'd be amazing. You, you never know. Maybe, maybe Araki will love uh, Mashima's character so much. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but then it would be, wow, that would be strange if I became like an influential type of character that appeared in various <laughs> manga, like the Tezuka star system or something. It's like if Goku's hair in Dragon Ball was based on a real kid who just had really messy hair. You could be like the Where's Waldo of manga. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like the panda man of every series. You'd be looking in the crowd shots to find, hey, where does Jason Thompson appear in this chapter of this series in Shonen Jump? <laughs> Oh, y'all are making me blush, but uh, I can only dream. But I, yeah, I've mostly, um, I am not doing as much in the world of manga as I used to, sadly. I've, I've gone on, actually, I'm doing a lot of work now. And um, well, I'm doing storyboarding for movies and I'm doing a, a lot of work for role-playing games and tabletop games, like our game Mangaka that my wife and I made, which you, which you mentioned earlier. That's a game I, I've been meaning to get around to playing for a long time now. Because I remember when you first put up the Kickstarter for it, I was like, oh my gosh, this looks awesome. I still need to get around and get some buddies and just have a good time with the game. Well, uh, let me know what you think. But it's really awesome that you're into storyboarding these days. Can you tell us about some of the projects you're working on? Yeah, I'm actually working on uh, Minions. Uh, I'm working for the Minions people on the new Minions movie. Wow. Which 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 will probably be out next year, I think. Uh, and um, I do some work for Dungeons and Dragons and other uh, role playing game um, publishers like uh, Swordfish Islands and uh, Jumana. My wife and I just uh, we recently released Cartooner, which is a sequel to um, Magaka, which is our our drawing tabletop game. And uh, yeah, so the inspiration for Magaka was that uh, it was a game where you could become. A manga artist, like your uh, like your heroes of Shonen Jump, and you try to struggle for fame and success. So we we tried to sort of we tried to put that into a game, and uh, 
and it actually is a it actually is a game where you draw stuff, but we wanted to make a game where your actual drawing ability didn't matter to as to whether you had fun or not and whether you won. So um so uh although it is about the very fiery burning shonen spirit of uh you know it, it, like Bakamem without the misogyny. Um, <laughs> You know, it, we, it's yeah. It's also a drawing game. We wanted to be accessible, you know, to everyone. So, mm-hmm. and it, both Bongaka and Cartooner seem like a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Mm, yeah, I'll have to check them out sometime. Yeah, um, I may be at a Anime Central this year. I'm doing demos. Um, yeah, but but don't quote me on that. Except that I just said it on the air, so we'll see. <laughs> but uh, I'll announce it on Twitter if it happens. Hmm. But it's really awesome. You're working on big projects for like Illumination and Dungeons and Dragons too. You're involved in a lot of big things. Yeah, um, it's actually I, yeah, I've always, I mean, I've always drawn ever since I was a kid, and um, I've uh, always, you know, I always had like a one hand in, com- in drawing my own comics. Uh, even back when I was working at Viz at the same time, uh, I was self-publishing some comics. Um, and luckily, Viz was always very cool with it, and there was never any trouble, like uh, you know, about me doing other stuff in comics in my spare time. Um, actually, I remember when I was uh, when I was, I think it was even at the Shonen Jump launch or um, around then. There was a. This is actually um, at that point I was wasn't doing any artwork on my own. I was just concentrating full on on editing for Viz. But one of the Shueisha executives was there. He was just sort of talking to me over over coffee was through a translator and or i think uh and i was like tell tell me jason did you ever want to draw comics when you were young and i was like i was like thinking and i was like wait a minute i still want to draw comics wait okay you know so uh i gotta draw some more comics um i gotta get back to that so yeah it's i you know i i mean i've always uh i, I love to draw and uh you know i mean i also love manga and uh, I love having the privilege of having gotten to work on, uh, you know, on manga and to work in some of the most, you know, high profile manga properties of the 2000s. So, uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, it's been exciting that, I, that that's been able to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've had an incredible career. And so circling back to your days at Viz, I guess that's where we should start. Like you were at Viz and it, like it's some of its early days, like in the mid 90s is when you started, I think. So I was wondering, what was it like to work at Wiz in its early days? And what were kind of the job responsibilities you had back then? Okay, well, I started working for Wiz in, I believe, 1996. And uh, I was just out of college. I'd graduated in 95. At the time, Wiz only had about 20 people. It was a small office in San Francisco. And it was, I mean, it had its own warehouse because they sold their own, uh, they sold a lot of stuff direct to customers because... um, you know, the distribution of manga and anime just wasn't that good. And uh, there wasn't that many stores that carried it. So they had a, like a side side hustle selling their own stuff, um, which I believe now is handled by like a third big fulfillment company. Um, but yeah, it was a small office in San Francisco. It was about maybe 20, maybe 30 people. And uh, it had a dark room in the back for like, you know, developing film because that was how this is pre-digital days. So all of the manga lettering and everything was all done by getting um, anal- old-fashioned analog film from Japan. And then this guy Kyo, I believe, would come to the um, dark would come to the dark room and develop the film and like print it out onto big sheets of uh, glossy paper. And then we would mail the sheets of glossy paper to the letterers, and the letterers would draw on them with pencils and uh, send them back. That's crazy! Wow, <laughs> that's like. 
<laughs> I mean, digital really makes the process a lot easier these days, I, I think, because, wow, that's a lot of steps in order to, like, redraw a page in order to letter it. I can't even imagine what that was like. It was so much harder. It was really hard. Um, and uh, lettering, actually, honestly, the lettering quality was a lot, kind of weak in, in some of those old titles from the 90s. And, but just because they're... Um, just because, you know, letterers had to, like, be, were gluing paper over paper and, like, using whiteout and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was so much more time-consuming and just using Photoshop. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that in earlier titles where it was uh, hand-lettered, like, oftentimes they'd have to increase the size of the word balloons in order to fit a bunch of text in. Or they'll really have to redraw things in order to add in a sound effect and stuff. So, like, a lot of the original art was often, like, uh, kind of cut or obscured in order to make room for, like, more text. Yeah, that was always a big problem. And really, a lot of it depended on the skill of the letterer. I mean, we had one or two people who were really good, and put and they obviously put a lot of care in, but some others were really sloppy. And, uh, <laughs> and, they, they, and we'd get pages back that, where they, like... You know, because manga artists, obviously, they use sound effects integrally to the, in the art in most cases. And you'll have, like, a gigantic dawn that, like, goes across the page and covers everything. And then, like... Some, and, you know, you have to really adjust a lot of stuff to replace that, turn that into a boom or something like that, you know. Um, that was one of the reasons Tokyo Pop was able to be so successful and to, like, do such uh, cheap books relative to the others in, like, 2001, 2002, is because they didn't pay money for lettering and they you know, didn't have to go through any of that nonsense. Wow, of course. And Tokyo Pop uh, brings us to, I think, the next question is that what was the state of the manga industry at the time of the North American Shonen Jump's launch? What factors do you think helped to debut when it did? Because I, I know that Tokyo Pop and their whole initiative of, like, quote-unquote authentic manga, manga in, like, the right-to-left format, like, that was a huge factor in, like, creating the kind of climate in which that allowed, like, Shonen Jump to come out. So manga was already more, it was already like rising and becoming more well-known in 2002 compared to when I started in, in the 90s. Because I mean, from that point on, from that point on, we'd already had like Dragon Ball on the air and uh, just the manga market and, and video and DVD was booming and, and things were, things were sort of doing okay. But actually the main thing that really boomed everything was Pokemon around 1998, 1999. Because Viz was doing the Pokemon manga, they'd gotten the license for that, and that was like their best-selling title ever. And suddenly, the, for the first time in its history, basically, the company had money. <laughs> so we were all looking like, what is going to be the next Pokemon? Um, and we got to do another thing that's going to be as successful as Pokemon. And somehow we had the idea that we would try to do like a really successful print magazine. Because, you know, I mean, everyone was aware that, that was the format of manga in, in Japan. And Viz had tried magazines before, but they weren't that successful. And of course, this is also, you know, 50, this is also like 16 years ago. So the, um, the like newsstand and magazine market was a lot healthier. And it still seemed like this is how we're going to get in front of people's eyeballs. The whole, like, you know, like this is like way before mobile or anything like that. So yeah, Viz was again trying to come up with a, a Pokemon replacement, and um, uh, also was starting to feel the heat from Tokyo Pop, who had basically had been more courageous than Viz and started publishing manga right to left um, instead of flipped mirror image left to right, and also was publishing cheaper books and more books. 
so yeah, this was kind of doing okay, but we were they were feeling the heat from uh, Tokyo Pop and also from uh, strangely from this magazine called Raijin, which was a short-lived magazine, which uh, was like the first was a weekly manga magazine published in the U.S. Uh, by and which was done by Gutsoon Entertainment, which was a coalition of former Shonen Jump artists and editors who had quit Shonen Jump, um, and uh, they had a magazine in Japan called Comic Bunch. And uh, Raijin was the official, the U.S. edition of Comic Bunch, which was, its headline title was, its headline title, I believe, was Fist, of, the Fist of the North Star sequel and Slam Dunk. So kind of older, older more, more old-fashioned looking titles. Um, so in that way, it was a little bit of an odd, it was a little bit of an odd attempt because already the writing was on the wall that the, the, the style of manga that was coming up was much more like a little more inviting and a little more young, younger audience centered and cartoony stuff like one piece, Shaman King, um, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh, of course. But anyways, um, I'm getting away from myself. Sorry. Uh, Viz wanted, Viz was feeling the heat from his competitors and we wanted, they wanted initially to do a children like a children's magazine, like a, a an English edition of Coral Coral Comic, like a magazine aimed at like elementary school kids. Like, um, and they wanted to try, they tried to get the Nintendo license and do like a magazine that had like Super Mario manga and stuff. But for whatever reason, they decided against that. And then they started, we started looking at Shonen Jump titles. Which is probably a good decision because like at the time, like Wiz had the license to the Pokemon Adventures manga, which was published in Coral Coral Comic. But Aside from that, there might have not been other series that could have, like, really been big from that magazine to, like, kind of be as big as his Pokemon. Like, there is the Mario manga, but I don't know what else was there in the early 2000s that would have, like, had kind of the name recognition that Pokemon did. And I'm sure uh, contributed to, like, the manga success. Yeah, I agree. I'm really glad we didn't go that direction. Um, they're just—I mean, the title, the art, just, the art just isn't that good. And those titles that are aimed at really young kids, and also little, really kids who are that young—they don't, you know, they, they can't like don't have money to go and buy magazines. You know, they have—they're dependent on what their parents get them. And plus, it's just not—it's just not as—it's not as fun. Um, I was really pushing the Shonen Jump properties because I was at the time because I, I, you know, I was really into all that stuff at the time and. Uh, Still am, and um, the problem was that uh, Viz is Viz was basically at the time a uh, a, a U.S. branch of the Japanese publisher Shogakukan, and uh, Shogakukan and Shueisha, the publisher of Shonen Jump, are rivals in Japan, and they 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 hate each other, uh, which is odd considering that they themselves are both different branches of an even larger corporation, um, which owns both of them, but uh, but they but they're fierce, they're fierce rivals. And because of this, we always had great difficulty getting the license for Shueisha titles. So uh, we were like, it was kind of like, well, we know that the really, the really hot stuff that people want is, you know, is our Shueisha titles. But um, but the licensing is going to be a nightmare, and it's going to be a real pain in the ass. But uh, we knew that was how where we had to go, basically. And how was the process collaborating with and negotiating with Shueisha to acquire those titles and launch on a jump? How involved and proactive were they in bringing the North American Shonen Jump to life? And was the project of making the English Shonen Jump what led to Shueisha becoming a co-owner of Wiz? Uh, it was it was that that led to Shueisha becoming a co-owner, co-owner of Wiz because um, that was essentially one of the conditions of Shueisha working with us was that they would acquire a stake in Wiz. And this essential this actually created a lot of. Uh, 
turmoil and resentment at like the upper, upper, upper management level because um, the upper executives at Viz, uh, they basically lost their authority to all these people from uh, Shueisha coming in uh, who were like, well, we're the boss now and uh, you got to do it the way we say or we're taking our money and going home. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, yeah, so some of the people at Viz, even they knew this was going to be successful for the company, but they were still pissed off. Um, they really, it, I mean, I, there was actually once, uh, there was a fire, like a very small fire in the Viz office. And wow. we all, around the time that Shueisha and the Shueisha deal was going through and uh, everyone had to leave the office. And we all gathered out in the street. Every, it was fine. It wasn't a major fire. But while we were gathered out in the street, one of the Viz executives, one of the upper, upper management, who'd been there since forever, was like, I hope it all burns down to the ground. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. He was so pissed. He was so annoyed at working with Shueisha. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of, there was a lot of older people at Viz who'd been there since like 1987 or something. And they kind of got sidelined essentially by this deal by new people had brought on and i wasn't i mean i was too i was actually elevated because you know i was at the time was just an editor and then i became a senior editor who got to work at shonen dump prior to that i had been working on uh i had been working on other manga like uh like silent mobius and the tenchi muyo manga and uh but uh, but yes i really i really 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 wanted to work on dragon ball and all that all that stuff Mm-hmm. And you got your start at Viz uh, at working on a magazine, a gaming magazine for Viz, right? Yeah, I did. Um, that was a short-lived magazine, which was... Uh, so there was a Japanese magazine uh, published by Shogakkan called Game On, with English and katakana you know, letters, you know, Game On. And um, at the time, this was around like the uh, 32-bit console um, revolution with where stuff like the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn were, uh, were coming out. So there was a lot of new video gaming magazines and Viz just kind of wanted to hop onto that bandwagon. And uh, so that's, that was my first assignment of Viz to edit that magazine, um, which I, I, and I managed to, I, I, I'm not happy to say, I managed to drive it into the ground and stuff in issues. Um, it wasn't a success. And it was all, by the way, it wasn't just a gaming news magazine. It was also a, it also had gaming manga. Like, um, you know, it had like Street Fighter manga and, and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it actually had some, it had some, the best thing was the Street Fighter manga by Masahiko Nakahira, who really kicks ass. A lot of his stuff has been published now by Udon Entertainment in Canada. But anyways, yeah, that was my first assignment. Um, but that wasn't nearly, that didn't have nearly as much power behind it as uh, Shonen Jump. And also, honestly, it, it, you know, <laughs> I tried. I wanted I, tried, I wanted it to succeed, but, you know, it didn't. Uh, yeah, but it, it was no Shonen Jump. Let's just put it that way. But luckily, Viz is really cool. So it let me, they let me keep working there, even though my magazine folded. That's really great. And so did your experience working on Game On contribute in any way to, like, well, how you approach Shonen Jump as an editor? I had not so much, I'm afraid to say, because they were very different magazines. Game On was primarily, uh, it was primarily like a, a game information magazine where we would like basically talk to talk to our, our Japanese collaborators at Game On, at Game On Japan, and we'd try to get information. Um, although their, our communication was actually really bad, so a lot of time I was, I'd just be looking through Japanese magazines, you know, trying, trying to see what was, <laughs> trying to see what was going on. 
with this insanely slow 1990s gap in speed where like something is printed in Japan and then like someone has to rapidly write it down and print it in America. And then m- months later it comes out, it comes out and you're like, Oh, there's a new final fantasy. Wow. Um, so it was, a, it was a pretty, uh, yes, yeah, so it was, it was a kind of pretty shoestring operation where, whereas the Shonen Jump, uh, we knew it had to be big. So, um, they immediately brought on like a marketing, um, a third party marketing team, like uh, a PR team, basically. And um, they hired, uh, in addition to me, they hired a secondary editor, Drew Williams, to work on it. And also uh, Benjamin Wright, who was a designer at Viz, who previously been doing manga, he became solely the Shonen Jump designer. That was all he did. And then, and he was overworked as hell, producing like a 300 page magazine single-handedly even though you know monthly i mean that's insane like that's 10 pages a day i mean like less than that because i don't know if he'd have to work weekends but like he'd be working on 15 20 pages a day to get done that's pretty insane well he wasn't he wasn't well it wasn't that bad because he wasn't doing the lettering those were those still handled by people out of house yeah that's but he still had to like he still had to assemble i mean he had to put the pages together and make sure he didn't really screw up and like putting a thing in the wrong order okay that's basic that's very basic things that need to be taken care of but then he had to design all the little bonus pages that we had like all the like hey here's a photo spread of our trip to jump festa in japan or like here's some reviews of some video games which coincidentally are based on jump properties or like here's the letters column you know and here's the cover and you know all, all that stuff and I, I believe in the in the early issues we were still working on a mixture of digital and the analog um, uh, for the manga pages uh, and for like the artwork, we were like sorting through these slides, these like little photographic slides of like Dragon Ball and Yu-Gi-Oh images, you know. Um, we were literally switching to digital as this was all happening. So, and thank God that we did. But uh, at the time, we were still we were still like caught like in between, <laughs> in between Betamax and DVD, basically. So. Wow. Yeah, I have to say, it would have been crazy to continue uh, editing Shonen Jump like analog because all the work and like these columns and all these like stuff between the manga like there's so much work that goes into the graphic design of these and the layout of these that like it would have been i can't imagine it would be like hell to assemble all of this in a 300 page monthly magazine just like analog without digital tools yeah i mean the uh, the pages that weren't manga were never done analog those those were always um laid out digitally but yeah, I remember we would we would still be getting these big sheets of uh, lettering pages for Yu-Gi-Oh and stuff, and uh, you know it all it all came together sort of somehow. Um, but I think I believe that the fact that we needed the pages digitally actually helped push Shueisha to start uh, working digitally on their end. I'm sure it would have happened anyways, but we were like, please scan everything for us as soon as possible. And so they're like, okay, we don't want to, but fine, we'll start scanning Naruto, you know. <laughs> That's really awesome that some of the innovations made in producing the English Shonen Jump would influence the Japanese side. Yeah, you know, not as not that many, but you know, we we did have to work together, and uh, you know, they were they were really um, the Shueisha people were they really they really wanted to be their stuff to be successful in the U.S. and to you know to dominate the American comics market like they did in Japan, and they also really had a grudge against the. Um, people who did Raijin magazine who were the ex Shonen Jump editors. So they actually were really, they, it was really personal for them. There's a lot of, there was always a lot of these weird little interpersonal grudges, like, Oh, this artist wants that, or this editor is pissed off at that person. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it, looking back, it was ridiculous to think that these like Tetsuo Hara manga that like were drawn in this like square jawed manly man style and like City Hunter. I mean, you know, I know, I mean, I, you know, I remember I watched City Hunter when I was starting out as an anime fan, but it was ridiculous to think that City Hunter would have. We were we were really worried, like, oh my gosh, kids are going to read City Hunter instead of <laughs> Yu Gi Oh, or we're in trouble. I don't honestly, I don't think we were ever really worried, but we had to pretend to be worried and also they and also that Raijinou was just throwing tons of money at this insane project and so were we we were also throwing a lot of money at the at the Shonen Jump yeah I imagine it was an incredible investment and it was probably a huge amount of work just to make that first issue like what did the timeline look like in assembling that first issue I don't remember the specific uh, timeline of how much we, time we had but it was very tight there was a lot of working on weekends and working late and uh yeah, I mean, trauma has blotted a lot of those memories from my mind. But it was, um, yeah, but it, it, it was a very, for many months leading up to it, we were ramping up to this and, and working hard. Oh, incidentally, we didn't decide on the name Shonen Jump until pretty, pretty close to the final announcement. Huh. I think one of the reasons was that the Viz people want really, that was like a, one of their last bits of individuality that they wanted to keep from Shueisha in a sense. Because if they trademark, created up the name and trademarked the name, it'd be a little more of their thing, you know. And so they actually, at one point, it was going to be called Manga Typhoon. <laughs> yeah, so that we, we did not come up with any other good, <laughs> any good titles. I mean, I... I... I, I, I can't imagine a world where ma- manga typhoon becomes uh, the, 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 the leading the leading manga brand in the US. Globally recognized brand. Yeah. Plus at that point it's like we're just copying Raijin, you know, like this, which is it sounds like Raijin and it's another win, win it's another windy title. So yeah, I'm, they actually sent out an email to the whole company, I think, at one point. Uh, we're like, please, do you have any ideas for names for the manga magazine? And people send back all these joke ideas which are really <laughs> awful so yeah um i mean generally the whole company was going through growing pains at that time and it was creating a lot of uh there was just this like the way things worked which were, it was becoming a lot more corporate um it wasn't like this slack air company where people would like stay till like a 10 o'clock or like like a dozen people would stay till like 10 o'clock in the warehouse playing counter-strike on the warehouse computers <laughs> and yelling at each other um in fact they shut down the warehouse and they Fired all, they laid off all those people because they were like, it's this is inefficient. Yeah, it's we got to give this to a certain other. We got to have Amazon handle this or whatever. You know, that's a shame. Like it seems like there was a, just a huge restructuring of Viz at that time, but like it definitely, I turned it into like the company it like the powerhouse it was for like the rest of the thousands of like its growth and like acquiring so many more titles. And Shonen Jump was like a huge part of that. Yeah. I mean, we were very pleased with how we were very pleased with how well how well it did. Um, although, just like in in Japan, I mean, our main purpose was to push the graphic novels. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Shueisha executives really wanted us to get the graphic novel price really low, and that's why the early titles were probably sold for seven ninety nine, which I think was a. Uh, I think we actually managed to beat Tokyo Pop, who, who had established the price at nine ninety nine. And I think they wanted us to go even, to go even lower, but it was just impossible. It was impossible mathematically to make any money that way. Yeah, I mean, I thought that eight dollars for those uh, early Shonen Jump ones were like a steal already, but like even lower, that's pretty crazy to me. Yeah, like as as a middle schooler at the time, like you know, seven ninety five was like my dream price. 
I mean, especially when you compare to American comics where you get so many less pages for an even higher price point. Like, that seems like such a, an affordable and really, like, something that you could, like, as a kid, I could, like, easily buy off my allowance and not, like, like totally blow all my savings. Like, that that, that was maybe, like a, like, a couple more dollars than I would spend at, like, McDonald's when I was younger or whatever. It, it was pretty great. Well, I'm glad it was I'm glad it was helpful to you because I mean that's what we were we were going for. Definitely. But before we talk more about the manga themselves, I was wondering like another part of the magazine that made it so cool to me were the various features and columns that were a part of it. So I was wondering where the ideas for some of these came from. All the Q and A's, the interviews, the spotlights and where's mangaka, the manga explorer section, which like in these early issues took a look at manga that were not even uh, being published in English yet. So I was wondering like maybe you could uh, go into like uh, what was the top process about some of these columns? Okay. Yeah. Most of the columns were handled by Drew Williams, who um he was brought on to be like the secondary editor to me. And then later on, after I stepped down, he became the, the main editor. He's, he's a super great guy. And so he, he was the one, he was the one who came up with basically this, this, the tone of the writing for the Shonen Jump, for Shonen Jump outside of the manga. Um, and he had previously worked for Nintendo Power, I believe. And he had a very snarky style. I don't know if you remember, but he was <laughs> always slipping. Uh, well, I, I, well, like, we never got in any trouble for it, but he was always slipping his double entendres and the, uh, jokes into the end of the magazine and uh um he's a really funny guy <laughs> um as for what the title stuff we printed aside apart from the manga yeah manga explorer was uh i believe that was my idea because i really wanted to talk about stuff that, that wasn't um published yet i mean i really wish we could be published hopefully we publish everything you know so i wanted to talk about titles that weren't available yet and to try to excite people I mean, from the executive side, what they really wanted to see was like, oh, it was like, oh, we need four pages on the new Yu-Gi-Oh video game. You know, we want to we want to pitch these, these we want to we want to do this cross promotional marketing. You know, and so we we had these, and so there was that, and we also would do, like, of course, there was this, you know, if we'd go into Japan or there was some, some place where we could get photos, of something cool happening, that we we'd, we'd do that too. And then there was OK Jump Guy, which was our, our joke column, which. Uh, which we found because there was a Japanese uh, Shonen Jump, a feature called OK Jump Guy. And uh, Drew and I were like, we should make that the title of, we should do something called that. We should actually have a Jump Guy. So we did that and we did, we made that like the the goof off page in the back um, with the whatever random like puzzles or cartoons that uh, Drew Drew was willing to make. And I love the humor and all that fun bonus content in the magazine. Like, I always loved that everything was written in such a fun tongue-in-cheek way with all these, like, jokes and these really fun humorous articles. We mentioned before in our Shaman King episode about one of the, like, features running in uh, one of the original Shonen Jones, which is, like, how did it survive in the desert of Sandlot? It was just, like, a series of misfortunes that befell a person. Like, they get hit by a cactus or get, like, mauled or something. And it, was, it just was incredibly hilarious series of misfortunes that happened to someone in a desert. Oh, you said sh- you you said you said Shaman King. No. Oh, Sandland. I, I meant Sandland, but like it was really funny. And then in like the no- issue where Naruto debuted, there was like a how to be a ninja like feature, which was really ridiculous. Like, 
<laughs> it was like showing like a bunch of like uh of ninja moves you could do but it's like you fight an angry boss you fight like a problem <laughs> child or a pricey lady <laughs> like all these fun jokes and then like i even love like in the answers in to like fan letters and stuff how you would play with readers and uh, the Shonen Jump audience. Because, like, in the back of the first issue of Shonen Jump, like, there's an Ask a Shonen Jump character section to the fan letters where someone writes a letter to Vegeta and is like, are you going to do, like, uh, like some sort of fan art section or something, I think they asked. And then Vegeta's answer is completely off topic. He's like, so, you want to know why Kakarot cannot be the legendary Super Saiyan? And he goes and lists off all this evidence from the Dragon Ball manga, including citations from pages from the graphic novels, explaining why Kak Goku cannot be the legendary Super Saiyan, and why he's the legendary Super Saiyan. And it's so funny. Oh man, I'm really glad that you liked that because we had a lot of fun coming up with those. I, it was 99% Drew. He was he's like a genius. And my, my friend Adam Burns was the person who actually drew Jump Guy. Uh, but Drew was the yeah. Drew is like he's so good at that stuff. He's such a funny guy. I mean, he is awesome to me. Like the his work uh, in these editorial comments really defined the tone of the magazine just as much as the manga itself, and made it such a pleasure to read every issue. Because as much as I was looking forward to the manga themselves, I also loved reading these columns. I'm really happy to hear that. And like I, especially in these early issues, I love that manga explorer column where it sh- was showing off like all these shonen jump series that were not brought into English yet, but was really letting you know like the scale of the legacy and what's out there uh, in terms of the manga that's available in Japan. And a lot of these series you wrote in this column uh, that were written about in this column, like Hikaru no Go and Prince of Tennis, would eventually be brought over, which was really cool. Yeah, there was some cases where we were kind of testing the waters to see what how people would respond to things. Also, in some cases, there were titles that we actually didn't think that we would be ever be able to get over, and I just wanted to, um, you know, just to call them out. This is a something for the, like more old school fans for things because, yeah, like at the time, like I honestly didn't think, for example, that we would ever get. It's hard to look about, look think about it now, but looking back. I didn't think we'd ever get Joe just with our adventure out in English. I mean, there was other, there was other old titles that didn't, that aren't, you know, that haven't aged as well. Like, I don't know, like bastard and stuff like that. But, um, but at the time there was all these, there was also all this whole, whole shown into backlog from like the eighties and nineties, you know, that was like a uh, stuff that, you know, had been, a, had like been big when I was like coming up as an anime and manga fan. And I was like, I wanted to call out to this and that, you know, and then, but then all the new stuff that was coming out at the same time, like, you know, yeah, like, um, like Hikaru no Go, which, um, yeah, I was really surprised. Uh, honestly, I have to say, I don't know how well the sales were, but I, I was really surprised by how much, and pleased by how much fandom success Hikaru no Go had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you probably have to thank, uh, I mean, I know that in, I know that the executives in Shueisha really wanted it to come out here. I was like, oh, we should. I was like, we should do Ice Shield Twenty One first before Hikaru no Go, because um, you know, I, well, I love, I love his art, and I was like, yeah, Ice Shield Twenty One football. It's gonna be a huge. It's gonna be like a cool crossover hit. We're gonna get like crazy, crazy press and stuff. Um, and Ice Shield Twenty One, you know. Well, I, I had, I had hopes, and Ice Shield Twenty One did did okay, but uh, yeah, Hikaru no Go. I mean, well, yeah, it's just such a great title. 
And I think, honestly, the people, some of the people who uh, we have to thank for that success, of course, is, you know, I mean, Viz would, Viz would be pissed to hear me say this, but the Scandalation community and like Toriyama's world, the, which was one of the first Shonen Jump Scandalation websites, because hmm. they, they had so much success with, uh, with Hikaru no Go. And this, and like around 2002, 2003, 2004, Viz, uh, Shonen Jump had this sort of weird... Uh, this weird relationship with the Scandalation community. Well, first off, of course, Scandalations weren't nearly as huge then, but there was still this, like, they were sort of watching us and grading what we were doing. And, uh, um, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, just a, it wasn't, you know, like a malevolent, like we're going to bootleg all your titles and, uh, you know, sort of thing. Cause a lot of, cause they, uh, Toriyama's world, um, in particular, they were like, they were like, well, once the manga is licensed in English, we'll stop publishing it and, uh, we'll stop scanning it and, take it down mm-hmm. very good yeah so they were very they were like the nicest the nicest scandalators and uh we were and we would you know and although i don't even know if we were technically allowed to we as editors we would go to their side and see you know what the heck they were up to um i didn't actually become aware of the scandalation community until after shonen jump was already well and was already like well along but then, I, then we start. It's only then that we started getting people saying like, "Your translation of Naruto isn't the same as the Scanlator's translation of Naruto." And I was like, "What the, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about?" Um, actually, Naruto fandom. Um, we had a lot of problems problems with Naruto early on because uh, the Scanlation was really popular, and the rewriter, the editor, the, like translator rewriter team that we used for Naruto, um, they totally went their own way and used made up made up all their own terms. And this is uh, also my fault because I was I was the editor and I I sort of just was like I was like ah scanlations you know you know whatever it's they're their own thing, but people were already used to the scanlation names and uh, they were like what the hell is this why are you calling this this move the art of the doppelganger why it's it's the it's the <laughs> you know I don't remember is is it the bunshin jutsu gosh I don't remember something um, like that yeah yeah. So uh, that was like one of our community outreach f- fails early on. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Even even coming from, uh, uh, I mean, uh, when I was into Naruto, like I got into it through the Toonami run, and uh, uh-huh. even as somebody who had only like watched the dub of the anime, like it was, it, it was kind of weird to see like certain moves uh, be called different things. I, I wasn't I wasn't used to it. Like I think. Uh, like I, I was so used to Naruto's signature move being the Shadow Clone Jutsu, and I was like, you yeah. know, why are they calling it a doppelganger? That's weird." Oh well, <laughs> it didn't really bother me much, but it was, it was, it was kind of an interesting change to kind of get used to, as far as that went. Yeah, it was that was that was a mistake that uh, you know, that was a mistake that I made. I should have uh, been more. I should have been paying more attention to that team, and uh, we eventually ended up replacing both of the both of the people, both the original translator and the original uh, the original quote unquote rewriter of Naruto. This was back at the time when Viz had like a, two people working on each on each translated manga in general. One was the uh, the translator who basically. Basically, it was a legacy from like the way back in the eighties when Viz was founded by um, like three people, um, and they had uh, they had translators whose, in some cases, their their English was not one hundred percent, and then we had rewriters who didn't know any Japanese, and they worked they sort of worked together to create this legible you know English translation of a of a manga. Um, and so for at the time it, when Shonen Jump started, they still had like a translator and a rewriter working on each title. And honestly, the rewriter mostly didn't, the rewriter mostly didn't do anything except, and 
you know, I mean, I, I liked the movie with people, but mostly the, all they did was piss off the fans, sadly. <laughs> I mean, somehow, sometimes, yeah, sometimes they would come up with, sometimes they were actually really good writers who did other comic stuff, and they'd come up, they just, they, you know, they could, like, come up with a good turn of phrase, you know, they, they could write good English, but, you know, whenever they started changing, like, the names or anything, people would get so pissed. And, you know, I, I tried to stick to, like, the, I mean, you know, I tried to stick to, like, um, the Japanese names, but, you know, I just wasn't, um, but I, I, I wasn't as, you know, we all weren't as um, close, as careful about it back then. Like, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a Dragon Ball fan since forever. So I knew, like, I knew, like, you can't, don't change, you can't change any names in Dragon Ball. And the rewriter, the rewriter was like, oh God, this is just like an example. Like, the rewriter was like, Vegeta is a stupid name and I'm like you don't know what you're talking about just shut up just don't you can't we don't change the name Vegeta <laughs> the rewriter wanted to change the name of uh, Vegeta yeah because this is like before Dragon Ball was even on television he didn't know what the, he didn't know what the he didn't know what the hell was going on he was just like yeah I mean he didn't realize that Dragon Ball was Dragon Ball you know he's I mean he's just some guy who like did superhero comics right so he didn't he didn't have any respect um I mean, that's crazy to me because the English uh, editions of the manga ha- have more faithful names on the whole to the original Japanese, like Kurobin, it's called Kurobin, as opposed to in the Funimation dub where he's called Krillin. But it's crazy to me, like, if that rewriter had his way, what kind of crazy name changes would we have had in the, this edition of the manga? <laughs> well, luckily, I and, and Trish Ledoux, who was the editor before me, uh, we, we weren't, we, we weren't going to allow that. But the truth is, uh, sadly, was that when it came to, like, the first for the beginning of Naruto. I mean, I knew Naruto was a big deal. You know, I wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't like, what is this silly little title Naruto? But, but it just doesn't, it just wasn't as emotionally precious to me as Dragon Ball. Right. So I was like willing to, I, I, I didn't mind. I, I didn't have the attachment to the names that I should have had. So I was like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever. Art of the doppelganger. Sure. You know, and then, uh, but you know, then like, then everyone got really pissed off. Like, well, of course, God damn it. I really, I, I screwed up. So, um, that's really a shame because like, I, I could, I, I mean, I, I could see the value in like having a rewriter to like, you know, I, I guess have the dialogue make a little more sense in English. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, to see, like, he- hearing you talk about this stuff really, really just kind of, like, makes sense to me as to, like, because I-, I remember, I-, I think, like, the weirdest thing that, like, uh, Viz of the Olden Times has ever done is, like, can can you explain to me what went into, like, um, n- now that we're talking about this, can you explain to me what went into the process of, like, because I'm pretty sure in, like, the very beginning of, like, what Viz released as Dragon Ball Z, they had, uh, Piccolo was talking like old speak for some reason. Like, do do oh, you yeah. do do you know what went into that like change or like I like because because they had him they had him speak a very different kind of like Shakespearean kind of language for like a few chapters and then I think it gets dropped pretty quickly. Yeah, that was definitely the rewriter, and that was before I started working on it because I actually didn't okay. start working on Dragon Ball. I didn't start working on Dragon Ball until about. Um, well, of course, Viz, Viz split it into two series, but I didn't start working on it until about volume four or five of each series. So I worked on about thirty-two of the forty of the forty-two volumes of Dragon Ball. Um, and by that time, that he'd kind of stopped uh, going on these out in these weird limbs, and the character voices were more consistent. Okay, because that 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 was like that was like the like the weirdest thing I I had ever seen in like the English translation. That was that was that was such a weird thing. 
Well, it was interesting because uh, at the time we had a lot of, for the first couple of years, we had a lot of freedom in the names, um, for good or bad, right? <laughs> um, but, but the thing is, we didn't have to coordinate with the anime people. We didn't have to coordinate with Funimation. Um, and in some cases, this meant we, we could have the names be actually more accurate, like with Corellin. Like and uh but but then like in the two late like in the 2000s after shonen became big and this is something and a whole other issue but after shonen became big this decided they had to be a lot more careful about what they would publish in the magazine because of course there's a lot of like a there's a lot of violence and guts being ripped out and the occasional nudity in, in shonen jump japan um and a lot of there's a lot of stuff and you know we were trying to sell this as a magazine which like hey kids come check out shonen jump and the and that was actually one of the first um, things that I had to think about because when we had a PR team, they did a fake interview with me and they kept trapping me with this gotcha question like, hey, didn't you, hey, Jason, didn't you notice that Shonen Jump is full of like violence and like people getting murdered? And also there's like a, there's a, and of course, remember, this is, this is old Shonen Jump and there's sexual harassment in this chapter. And I'm like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> So, but anyways, but part of that was we had to start changing, uh, well, we had to start changing char- some character names towards, because like they didn't want us to call Mr. We couldn't ha- call Mr. Satan, Mr. Satan. So we had to go with, so I was like, screw it. We'll just go with the anime. We'll just go with the anime name. We'll just call him Hercule. Um, because we, we couldn't do call him Mr. Satan. And they also started cutting stuff like, uh, I mean, there's some, there's a, you know, like there's some guns in Dragon Ball. And I did cut some blood, you know, and um and some of the other titles got like uh, Shaman King, um, for example, got had a lot, had a lot bigger cuts because they had more uh, like edgy stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you had to edit out like Manta being tied up to a cross uh, when Foss gets introduced and stuff. Yes, no crosses. Yeah, that happened in Yu-Gi-Oh as well. So there was definitely a lot of concern over like some of the content in these series so which required eventually like them to be edited to be more like family friendly and to be like sold in like places like walmarts or targets which is like where i would always find issues and like scholastic book fairs and stuff Mm -hmm. oh scholastic was huge and they actually did have um they actually coordinated with us pretty closely and i think they they, their content requirements ended up being the magazine's content requirements basically circling back to the manga i was wondering how was the lineup for the magazine determined? Like the original starting lineup, and like what titles were considered? Were there any titles that were considered but not run ultimately? Were there any titles that Shueisha pushed to have in the magazine? Well, the, I believe the original starting lineup for the very first issue was I believe it was Dragon Ball, Sandland, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, and One Piece, and, and Yu Yu Hakusho. Oh, and Yu Hakusho. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, Shueisha, I mean, they wanted to, they kind of wanted to push the newer titles that were doing great for them. Like, so One Piece, obviously. Um, Naruto, we actually, I think, had in the second issue. And I don't remember why we didn't have that in the first issue. But I think, honestly, at the time, I mean, well, still, even now, I mean, One Piece was a little bigger, right? Um, One Piece was more popular in Japan. And, and, uh, and Naruto ended up being more popular in the U.S. But I mean... One Piece is One Piece is still going strong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would argue One Piece is more popular now than it was like way, way, way back then. Yeah, I agree. Most definitely. And, yeah, and I think the art's better now too. Um, at least certainly than it was in the very, very for a couple of first issues of One Piece. But the, which is just a typical shonen manga thing where you you know the wheels start turning slowly and it gets you know yeah. the artist gets more into mm-hmm. into their groove. 
Um, and Shaman King, I don't, I mean, Shaman King, uh, I, I, I always, I loved Shaman King and, um, and that ended, I don't remember. I mean, yeah, that was also always another strong contender. We may have considered having, I don't remember. We may have considered having Roroni Kenshin in the magazine at one point because that was big at the time. But, and, um, but that artist, I believe, well, anyways, he's obviously, uh, obviously much, much we could talk about that artist, but we didn't, end yeah. up choosing, <laughs> we, we didn't end up choosing Roroni Kenshin. Um, I guess the title that, uh, that kind of stands out to me would probably be Yu Yu Hakusho just because like, I know Yu Yu Hakusho obviously was, I'm sure still pretty popular at the time, but like, it's also such an odd, uh, it's also also such an oddity to me because it's also like a, a couple years older than a lot of the other titles that started in, in the Shonen Jump lineup, which is interesting to me. Yeah, it really is. And I think we just did it because of the anime, essentially, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was on Toonami and Adult Swim at the time, so. Yeah. And we really wanted to, we wanted to have all the Toonami, all, the, all those big titles, because, uh, I mean... I mean, yeah, because it was that it was that time, that time period was so huge for for anime on television, and um, I mean, yeah, it's a shame there's not even anything like it now. Although, of course, the whole very definition of television is different now. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think nowadays uh, people look to streaming to discover anime, and Toonami is still around, but it's definitely like uh, it's definitely like for a particular audience that it's not like getting new people into it as much Mm -hmm. yeah no those early 2000s um i remember the first time i saw Yu-Gi-Oh on tv i was like hell yeah um (laughs) yeah that was uh i mean that that's basically the conditions that allowed shonen jump to be to be a success you know or at least as successful as it was you know that it had access to so many titles that were getting really popular on tv and so people that discovered these shows on tv could go and see in their local target or walmart whatever this magazine that had yugi on the cover and like oh my gosh yugi there's a comic of of Yu-Gi-Oh! i gotta read this and pick up an issue i can't imagine like this was such a weird thing for me because obviously like the original Yu-Gi-Oh! manga as it starts off is very different than uh, than the Duel Monsters anime in particular that got picked up by four kids. So like I I can't even imagine I well I I say that but like I remember sort of like the whiplash I had where you know I had no idea that like the series started off so darkly. So I I legitimately wondered like is this the same thing? And that's an interesting question to me is that what what was like the uh, top houses behind like starting Yu-Gi-Oh with that early material in the Shonen Jump magazine rather than starting with the Yu-Gi-Oh with the like dual monsters material like what would later be uh, called in the English editions as Yu-Gi-Oh Duelist? I honestly don't I mean I, I'm really happy that we started with the beginning because I would have hate, I, I actually really like that I really like that weird stuff. Um, oh yeah, same. And mm-hmm. I, really, I, really, I really like the mon- I like the monster world storyline, especially since it's like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I think we just decided we we just decided to, to, to shoot for it, right? Because I mean, the story reads a lot better if you know about the beginning, and they have you know that's where you first get to meet Kaiba and establish the, the first games of of dual monsters or or magic and wizards, quote unquote. It's <laughs> so totally not Magic the Gathering. I know, I know. It's so great. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, I'm really happy we did that. I don't remember the discussions that we had, but um, you know, I, I, I feel 
I, I feel we must have had the confidence that we could that we could do this. And also that the fact that it's different material it makes it appealing in its own way because the truth because one night the nice thing about the early material is that not only is it like the secret origin story, et cetera, et cetera, that you won't see on American television, but the stories are more short. It's more like one, two chapter stories, right? Whereas opposed it's not like these super long dualist arcs where it's like, oh, another it's where it's like these like, well, we've been fighting for seven chapters and you can only see two or three of those chapters chapters at a time in the magazine so i think it reads better as well you know i agree especially since those early chapters are so often episodic contained to just a single chapter story or two chapter stories but also yeah i think that was a huge part of the appeal of those early chapters and like if you were a fan of Yu-Gi-Oh, you could see material you were not going to be able to see in the show and it's actually, it's kind of ironic that, like, Shonen Jump never published, like, the dual monsters portion of the story in its run. It only published, like, the early material and the Millennium World stuff. Well, at some point, we decided that we had to split it into titles, so we had to get it out there quicker, you know, because it was selling really well. We just wanted to sell, it was selling well, we wanted to sell more of it. And we realized also that the problem that was always driving us crazy at the time, which is that since we, even though we were publishing pretty fast for American comic standards. We were still slipping behind the Japanese edition. So we had to like start cheating and putting out these whole books. We had to basically start producing like 200 pages a month, right? Otherwise we were never going to catch up. And, and, you know, you have to, you gotta, you gotta, we had to do it while Yu-Gi-Oh! is still hot. We didn't, you know, we, we didn't know the, you gotta live for the, you gotta carpe diem and live for the moment and make money. Um, See, that makes sense because, like, I, I understand, like, you know, the distinction between, like, Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z because, obviously, you know, that, that kind of came from the anime. But, like, I, I never really understood why Yu-Gi-Oh! in particular was, like, split up in the parts. And now I know why. That that makes a lot of sense, honestly. Yeah. But, I, I mean, honestly, yeah, I think it was obviously just to sell, to, to get it out there to stores faster. Um, but I think it was, luckily it was a pretty it was, it was a pretty natural place to split it because the beginning and then the dual the dual monsters part and the millennium part at the end are really different. At least I feel they're different, and I really love Yu Gi Oh. It's actually one of my uh, favorite titles that I ever got to work on. So um, although I don't I don't like the new stuff, but, <laughs> but I, I really I really like the original series. Fair enough. So yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was a lot that was a lot of fun to work on. And speaking also of Yu-Gi-Oh, another aspect I've always wondered was from the very first issue, like uh, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh cards were like a huge promotional part of uh, buying Shonen Jump volumes. Like on this very first issue, it like has in big, bold yellow letters, free, exclusive, ultra rare Yu-Gi-Oh card inside. And like throughout the run of the print magazine and the digital magazine, like Yu-Gi-Oh cards were included in the subscription as bonuses. And so I was wondering like how important was the partnership between Viz and Konami to Shonen Jump? Uh, what was the relationship like throughout the years of the magazine? And do you think Yu-Gi-Oh! played a big role in Shonen Jump's success or vice versa? Because, like, another thing I've always noticed is that Yu-Gi-Oh! is probably the most frequently represented series on the covers of, like, early Shonen Jump issues, more so than Dragon Ball. Yeah, um... I think Yu-Gi-Oh may have actually been. I don't know. Remember which was pop, more popular at the time, Yu-Gi-Oh or Dragon Ball by, by by numbers, but definitely Yu-Gi-Oh was very popular, and the card game was very popular. And we were coming to things a little bit, tiny bit late too, you know, because they, you know, even though it was just like a year or two, the stuff was already out there. 
And yes, the relation. So yeah, we had to, we knew that that was going to be a big hit for us. And we also um, had to have a good relationship with uh, Konami and Upper Deck. And the truth is that uh, initially Upper Deck wouldn't give us the time of day. They were like, they didn't give it, they didn't. Can I swear in your podcast? I really want to swear. Yeah, yes. go ahead. Right. No worries. Yeah, they, didn't, they, didn't give it, they didn't give a shit about Viz, and they wouldn't talk to us. <laughs> wow. And it was this is, and then we discovered one of the nice things about being bought by Shueisha because basically there was something like Comic Con or something. I think like in 2002, just before Jump came out, where like uh, Viz people went to Upper Deck and they upper, they were like, oh, they won't, they're they're busy, they won't talk to me or something. I don't something really crazy like that. Some crazy stupid snub, and then like. Then, like, someone at Viz would like, someone, one of the executives at Viz who was visiting Japan was like, okay, well, tell them that they, uh, Viz is Shueisha and they have to treat you like us and they better give you all their Yu Gi Oh! They better give you all their Yu Gi Oh! right now. <laughs> so, so then basically, the relationship flipped and they had to do whatever we said, but they still weren't happy about it because, you know, they, they didn't, they just didn't care about. They didn't care about manga. They were a card upper. That was Upper Deck. It was a card game company. I mean, hopefully, there's no one at Upper Deck listening to this right now who's like, "Whatever, I'm pissed off. I I loved Yu-Gi-Oh, you know." But it was a very. It was the. Uh, that's what I remember is that they were hard. They didn't care about us until basically we had to twist their arm, and then they were like, "All right, all right." It was, it was kind of a lot like Yu-Gi-Oh. Actually, we had to be cruel to be, and then uh, then they did what we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, ultimately, I think it worked out for them, even if they had to be uh, brought in kicking and screaming, because I'm sure a lot of people might have got it into the card game or that it. It contributed to keeping the card game alive, like having Yu-Gi-Oh cards, exclusive rare cards in Shonen Jump issues that people would seek out. I, I remember like every every change that the American Shonen Jump has gone through, whether it be like the start of the print magazine, the, the transition from print to digital, and now the transition from d- digital magazine to now subscription service, like ev- every change I've seen with American Shonen Jump you know, there's there's I always see somebody ask like, "What? Hey, what about the Yu-Gi-Oh cards? Can, can we still get those?" Like, there's always there's always like a handful of people that like are really concerned that they're not going to get Yu-Gi-Oh cards through their subscription anymore. So like, oh c- yes, yes, c- clearly there's an audience for those cards. Yeah, yeah, and I, which is strange. Well, I gotta say, I gotta confess, I've never played Yu-Gi-Oh. I played wow. I played Magic, of course, but I I managed to never play Yu Gi Oh. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I I mean I I've just never liked collectible card games that much. But um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I like all kinds of other nerdy nerdy games, but uh, um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know why I don't know why I'm saying that. Like, someone could be proud of. Like, you worked in a Yu Gi Oh for like what, six years, and you never played a game. I mean, yeah, I actually should be ashamed, but um. But I did research the game extensively, and I did my best to like. Uh, I did my best to make sure that the card text on the uh, manga was made sense and was consistent, which was hard because sometimes the, what happens in the manga is total nonsense. But nothing of anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, the card game has actual rules, or as in the manga, uh, Kazuki Takahashi makes up stuff in order to make the story happen. <laughs> Yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! was a big influence on my uh, my graphic novel series that I did with Victor Howe, King of RPGs. Although we only did two volumes of it, but I really uh, was I was really 
if you if you read it, uh, I was really like channeling Yu-Gi-Oh, and even though it's and even technically, at least I felt I was channeling Yu-Gi-Oh. And even technically, even though it's about RPG, it's just like a hundred pages of made-up card game in the first volume. So. <laughs> that sounds awesome. But speaking of promotional tie-ins and stuff like with Yu-Gi-Oh, I was wondering how was Shonen Jump promoted in the early days, in the lead-up to the debut of the magazine? What were some of the early stunts or marketing events you did to increase awareness of it? Well, I we I always wanted uh, to spend more money on marketing, but uh, you know we did, uh, had a limited budget. I don't. I think we may have had some television advertising. I know we probably had some magazine advertising in other like children's magazines or something, but there's a lot that I, that I may have not been aware of or, or, or missed. Um, and of course we advertised to the, like the comic store, to comic market, to like a, uh, you know, diamond to comics distributors. I, I don't know if it ever like aired on television, but I, I know through research uh, in the last couple of months for like for, for the podcast, like there is definitely a, a show to jump, video ad that i don't I, i'm sure was like on like all the probably like the anime releases or whatnot but uh yeah that exists yeah i've seen that on uh like when i was re-watching dragon ball z films really this year uh and i put in my copy of like early 2000s uh dbz dvds like there were shonen jump ads on there there was like a 30 second shonen jump ad was saying a oh, home of the hottest manga like one piece uh, oh, yeah. Dragon Ball Naruto. Will Luffy ever find the One Piece? Is how one ad ends. Uh, love, like, love, no, it's love. It's it's Luffy. Thank you. Luffy, yes. <laughs> God, I know that Luffy versus Luffy. So Will Luffy ever find the One Piece? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. No, you're right. Actually, thank you for reminding me because I had forgotten about that. Yes, uh, and of course, yeah, it did run on the DVD. It did run on the DVDs. Yeah, we also had a, uh, leading up to the launch, we also had a, had like a, a, I mean, we were at all the anime conventions, the comic conventions too, with these big booths. Um, and we also had a promotional, like a launch event in New York City, um, which I think was in, I don't remember when, it was it was snowing, so I, I don't remember when, there was a mist in the air. No, it was, I think it was in like November or October, um, and we had a uh, this kind of funky launch event where we had kids off the street coming in and Giving, giving free copies of Shonen Jump, and Toriyama was uh was there, but yeah, we I mean we did whatever we could. I think the video ads were great. They were a great idea. The video ads, which I hadn't remembered until you just brought them up a second ago. I mean, if it makes you if it makes <laughs> you feel any better, I had no idea that video existed until like I I researched it a couple months ago for for an episode of the podcast we did concerning Shonen Jump. But um, so actually, real quick, I don't mean to detract us, but like I I have to know. What, what what was it like meeting Toriyama? Toriyama's super chill. Um, yeah, he's just a very friendly, nice guy. He drew me a picture of Piccolo, which I still have. Ah, um, awesome! Yeah, yeah, on a shikishi. It's so nice. I'm really. I, I, that's like the, the. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, yeah, he's just very relaxed. His his children. I don't think his children were there. His wife was there. Um, this is of course way before Dragon Ball Super or anything. So he wasn't doing any Dragon Ball related. He, he, there was, I mean, there, he, he wasn't even doing any advisory work on Dragon Ball. He was just, you know, enjoying his enjoying his re- semi retirement. Um, I heard now one of the people uh, who's one of the uh, Japanese speakers told me that he was quote very funny and quote very had a very dirty sense of humor. But I didn't. He wasn't <laughs> expressing this in English at all. Um, 
Now, and there was one thing that happened, which was I very regret, regret very deeply, um, and that is that uh, that is that I like when you know when I first saw him. Oh gosh, um, I was I was like, oh my gosh, I'm speaking to you through a translator because he only spoke a little English. I was like, oh, I, I'm yeah, I'm the editor. I'm the person who's. I'm the per, I'm the editor, and of course, by when I say that I'm the editor of Dragon Ball, of course, what the English editors do is like it's like you know it's like the person who puts the frame on the painting versus the person who does the <laughs> painting. You know, I mean, I mean, the editors in Japan, of course, they're like oh, so intimately involved, and in some cases, you know, they're actually since I mean, I've always heard stories where like the editor is the writer, basically, like uh, the editor, the, like the artist that you think is doing all the writing, it doesn't actually. Do half of it, and the editor is the person who's like, "Why don't you have this plot just have you know?" Some are more uh, responsible for uh, certain villains of the series. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Mr. Mashirito. Um, but speaking of, speaking of that, yeah. Anyways, when I met Toriyama, I'm like, "Oh, I love Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball," and he was like, "Oh, thank you. Have you read Doctor Slump?" <laughs> and at the time, I hadn't read Doctor Slump yet. I hadn't read it, so I had to confess to him that I hadn't read Doctor Slump, which is the series that he actually. That's like the series that he did when he was like, like 22 years old or whatever, and it's like that he deeply cares about, right? I mean, he put so much <laughs> of his heart into it. So I was, I had to answer, and he was just like, you know, smiled. But I, I know that he was like, you know, uh, I'm not like, uh, I'll never, pat, I'll never get that chance back. So, anyways, I've read Doctor Slump since then, but you know, you only, you only get to meet Toriyama once, at least if you're me. Ah. Uh. Man. Well, well, maybe you'll have another chance one day, and you'll be able to say to him, "Yes, I have read all Doctor Stomp. It's great." I'll be like, "Yes, draw a raw. I don't want to draw. I don't want you to draw Piccolo. Draw a raw for me. <laughs> uh, draw Mashirito instead of Piccolo, yeah. the other uh, villain that um, Torishima inspired." I, I just I just imagine you meeting Toriyama and being like, "Remember me? I actually I, I've actually read Doctor Slump since then." And he's just like, "Who are you again?" <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah i mean mashirito torishima was was there he and some of the other editors who appear in bakuman were people who were definitely involved with the launch um mm. and i and uh who i talked to interesting yeah i so i, I mean i only was the, the solo solo editor i mean i only was the senior editor of shonen dump for like seven six or seven issues honestly um i mean i worked on it for about a year i, I worked on it nonstop for about a year because it took several months of lead up for the for the you know the magazine could start while we were still deciding what the lineup would be and uh, a lot of a lot of stuff um so i guess i guess at one point did you like i guess step down from the magazine completely then well, I stepped, I basically just decided that um, I basically was just getting stressed. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was having my 28 year old midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> and uh, I decided that I really wanted to spend more time working on my art. And uh, so I, that I, so I basically told, I basically told, went to the HR people at Viz and I told them that I wanted to work part time at Viz, at Viz and uh, stepped down as the editor of Shonen Jump. And this is entirely for, this is basically entirely for personal reasons. It's entirely because I was getting a, uh, stressed out and I wanted to work on my own artwork. But when I, I demanded that I still, I wanted to be the editor of all the manga, I, I still wanted to be the, the manga editor, quote unquote. I still wanted to have the final say, final say over like, you know, the translations and lettering and everything for the Shono Jump titles. But Drew Williams, um, who I previously mentioned as, of course, the person who was, was like really funny, funny for uh, Shono Jump, he, he, he was, became like the 
editor uh, stepped up and he had to handle and unfortunately of course this basically meant he got all the shit work where he had to handle like all the like oh upper deck demands well i mean upper deck wasn't really in the position to demand anything but like the situation demands five pages of the of this like of this and you know we have to like do this and you know he had to deal with all the, that like corporate stress and I got to just do what I really liked was just to like work in the manga and decide of how, decide how you, you know, decide how Luffy's <laughs> Luffy, <laughs> decide what Luffy says and such and such page. Because actually this is at the point um, I mentioned before, of course, this had like translators and rewriters, but um, basically to save cut costs and also because the rewriters didn't really contribute that much, bless them. Uh, the rewriters mostly started getting fired. Were getting fired at this point. Um, it was in like five or six years. Almost all of them had been laid off. And at that point, the editors were the ones who were like making the final decisions over names and stuff like that. Um, and of just like of making sure the things sounded good. Didn't dialogue didn't sound clunky like a, like a bad translation. You know that would that would be a you know that would make the artist look bad. So yeah, that was the part that I really enjoyed. And uh, so I, I managed to I basically managed to. Uh, I basically managed to get them over a barrel, so they allowed me to do that, and um, I, I didn't have to deal with the annoying corporate junk anymore. And like you know, and I just had I just got to work on the manga, and I did that for another couple of years. And you got to continue doing Yu Gi Oh and Dragon Ball for pretty much your entire runs. Yeah, I did manage to continue working on on rewriting them or whatever whatever it is I was doing. I managed to continue working on them till the end. I managed to I had to be the person who had to decide what to name Mr. Satan because we couldn't name him Satan anymore. So yeah, that was a uh, yeah, I mean, it would have you know, I occasionally think of what what I would have been like if I'd continued be, being the editor um for a longer period. Um you know, it probably would have been I probably could have gotten a lot more shiki she drawn by different artists. Uh and, uh, you know, that would have been pretty cool. Um, you know, but, uh, anyways, but I got to, uh, I got to do a lot of drawing and that's, the, that's primarily what I do now is drawing and, uh, and working on games. Um, you know, and that's why I like one of the reasons I like Yu-Gi-Oh is cause I love, I love games. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it was a very, it's a very interesting time and I'm very, very glad and uh, grateful that I was able to be involved in Shonen Jump because, uh, you know, it really is a, it really is, a, yeah. It really is an exceptional, exceptional magazine, and uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's awesome. You've had like an incredible career and a lot of incredible experiences. Yeah, it's. I mean, working for Viz and working for Shonen Jump was was a, really, a lot of fun, and uh, I mean, it was interesting seeing manga go from like a very niche thing thing to like something that was this fairly mainstream. And I think in some ways it's become, it, of course, it's, it's star, the like quote unquote star of manga has kind of dipped a little since then, you know, because it doesn't, it's not like, because I mean, the whole media landscape is different, right? It doesn't, it's not like, there's not like, you know, there's X amount of TV channels and you flip on like, you know, and you flip on like, you know, the, the UHF or VHF television channel and you see Yu-Gi-Oh is playing and it's not, and even like, a, and it's not, there's no borders bookstores anymore to sell all that manga. I mean, yep. there's, there's still Barnes and Noble, I guess for the moment, but uh, you know, it's just a very different, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, with the economic crash in two, in 2008, 2009, that really hit a lot of the manga companies hard. And of course, even Tokyo pop collapsed eventually in 2011. There was, um, I think now things are stable and steady. And a lot of that has to do, of course, with digital stuff like, um, you know, like the new Shonen Jump magazine. 
But although I understand from what I talked to my friends at Viz that print manga is still the majority of their money. It's still the majority of their sales. And people who like print, reading manga and print still like reading manga and print. And it still sells well. Awesome. I can see that. That's really interesting that there's still like, a, I mean, I think we definitely see it that there's a huge audience for print manga these days. I mean, we regularly talk about how incredibly well series like My Hero Academia is doing. And in general, Viz has like some of the highest selling books on the market. Yeah, I mean, Viz, honestly, Viz is really hard to beat. I mean, because they have the two most successful, um, they do, they have two of the three most successful Japanese publishers behind them, right? Shueisha and Shogakkan. Um, I mean, the Shogakkan side, sadly, they haven't produced as many hits in recent years. Um, I mean, they did have, I mean, yeah, their they attempt to do like a Shonen Sunday line kind of fizzled out uh, tragically. You mentioned that... Uh... You know, that uh, earlier that Shueisha and Shigaku Khan have like this rivalry with each other, like now, yeah. now, now all like the, 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 like the conspiracy gears are like turning in my head like, oh, well, as soon as like Shueisha joined the picture, like I wonder if like, like if that's part of the reason like Shigaku Khan hasn't had as many manga published through this since then or some stuff like that. I don't know. Well, I do. Okay. Well, I, I'm not privy to all of these backdoor, uh, you know, all these secret things are going on. You know, I haven't worked there for many years, but um, my impression was that the whole reason that the Shonen, the Shonen Sunday started out, became a line, quote unquote, because, you know, there were the Shonen, there were, although there was never a magazine in the U.S., there was the Shonen Sunday book line yeah. for a while from Viz. That's just basically because of jealousy on, Shon, on, on Shogakkan's part, right? Because the Viz, oh, yeah, because I, sorry, remembering, um, I mean, Shonen Jump, they kind of, they didn't even want ads for other Viz titles in the back of Shonen Jump titles. They wanted to separate, they wanted to separate themselves out from the rest of Viz as much as possible. Um, they didn't want anyone, they didn't want any like Ranma ads in the back of a Shonen Jump book, you know, because that would, that would, they didn't want Ranma to get any, any, uh, spillover popularity, those jerks. I mean, that's, that's the kind of weird, petty corporate arguments we're talking about, right? Hmm. So then, so then, oh my so, gosh. So, yeah. So then Shonen Sunday had to get their own line because they were like, well, we want a line too, but it doesn't as big of a hit. Even though Shonen Sunday did get their own line, like like you said, that line was just not as like successful. I mean, it's still around. They still publish the Shonen, Jump, the Shonen Sunday series. They still publish under that line, like Renee and Maki. Case but like, Conan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's just not as many series. I was wondering your thoughts on this. Why do you think the Shonen Jump brand is like a household name among Western anime and manga fans these days? Well, similar brands like Shonen Sunday and Shoujo just aren't as widely recognized. Okay, well, I think Shonen Jump simply they've they've made more hits, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. they they just have a better track record, and uh, I don't know whether you know. I mean, I, I don't know whether this is because just they they. <laughs> I mean, if I was writing like a PR puff piece for Shonen Jump, I'd be like, they know how to find the best talent and nurture it and cultivate it into the greatest manga of all time, you know. Um, so maybe, maybe there's that. Um, also, of course, they got to have their own magazine and Shonen Sunday didn't. And Shonen Jump is just a better name to English speakers than Shonen Sunday, which sounds like a weird, sounds like a weird ice cream, you know. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a shame that like, you know, Shonen Sunday didn't get the same treatment, but like I also like I also can't imagine trying to market uh the titles for that magazine to to like say the Shonen Jump audience. Like it it just seems like Shonen Sunday just doesn't have that like 
They, they, I, I guess they just don't. I don't know. They, they don't have that same like kind of marketing that like Shonen Jump really puts into their stuff. It seems they're not. They just haven't. They just have. They, they've just had a bad decade, or maybe you know they just. Uh, I mean, the whole manga market in Japan is. You know, they still suffer. They're. I mean, you know, they. I love. I love manga, and uh, I know they're. I know manga will always will survive in some fashion, but I mean, the, they're still suffering with declining print magazine circulation yeah and i mean even in japan even japan's having a lot of bookstore closures and stuff right i mean um so i don't know how they're i mean i don't really know how they're doing financially it's been a little while since i really looked at the numbers or looked at what manga car saying um but i know that yeah but obviously shonen shonen job is like the they're like the I don't know. They're they're like the last city standing in the post-apocalyptic wasteland, right? You know, they're, they're every you know, they're with the big tower rising above all the ruins. I mean, <laughs> Shonen Jump will be around as long as manga is around, and uh, yeah, and you know they do man they do know how to develop good titles and also to switch and you know and you know also to to switch the formula like stuff like um you know the promised Neverland, which is really different from the typical like fighty fight fight you know Shonen manga that you had you know that was the previous for formula you know that and like you know dr stone and everything yeah you know they, they can be formulaic they can also shift and they can also they also have just the best artists in terms of just visuals i think uh, which is a shame because i do love takahashi and you know and you know i also edited i also worked on zatch bell uh until this canceled it and that was a fun series too yeah but tragically shown sunday hasn't they just have done haven't produced that many hits lately um and then viz also has of course viz also has a uh, haku shinsha which provides most of their uh, a lot of their shoujo manga um so yeah viz has just got it's simply connection it's really honestly just connections i mean that's kind of one of the reasons tokyo pop collapsed as a company although this is really old <laughs> really old so, but i'll <laughs> i'll try to but anyways yeah they, they simply didn't have um they simply didn't have a direct connection to a publisher i mean like, like it's like how del rey went out of the manga business and then Co- because kodansha wanted to publish their own stuff you know i mean ultimately it all ultimately the whatever the original licensor ultimately the original licensor held all the strengths and these other companies which were basically these other companies which were like american companies typically have not with the exception of dark horse they typically and i guess seven seas They've had to operate in a, in a lower level of the manga industry than these like behemoth Japanese corporations like Kodansha and Viz. I mean, I definitely think that Shonen Jump series and Shonen series are like just such a huge part of the North American market for manga in particular. Like, how much do you think that Shonen Jump and Shonen Jump series have like? contributed to the growth of the manga industry in North America and like it, the resurgence in recent years in particular with series like My Hero Academia and other Shueisha series like One Punch Man. Well, I mean, I think Shonen Jump series are still, I mean, they're still in, I mean, yeah, they're still some of the big, most most successful, you know, manga. I, I think they continue to be hugely successful. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess my answer is yes, I think, I think it's important. I think they're still a, uh, I think they're still huge. I don't know what this, what this, I don't have any uh, info on this subscription statistics for visit the new uh, Shonen Jump digital buffet titles. I mean, I'm really happy that they're doing that. I think it makes a lot of sense, but um, I don't know how well those are doing compared to their, the books. I do know that Shonen Jump probably was not profitable for a long time before it uh, 
Films of USA, that is, probably not profitable for a long time before it closed. Because, I mean, they were keeping, you know, they knew that they had to keep it going as a lot, as like a lost leader to, to pump, to, you know, to keep visibility for the titles and to, you know, to pump interest in the titles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm, I'm not surprised that Shonen Dump eventually collapsed because it just, you know, mag, the, mal, the whole, you know, magazines is, uh, you know, the whole, the whole market of magazines and like printed, the whole idea of disposable print it feels kind of environmentally irresponsible and it's, it's inconvenient. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still think it's incredible that they kept it in circulation and in print for like over a decade. Like it's kind of, it seems so long ago, but actually it's kind of recent when you think about it, like only in 2012, they stopped doing the print magazine, but I'm wondering because it was like you said, probably, being a loss leader towards the late years of its life. Do you think that Shonen Jump should have gone digital e- even earlier than it did? It probably should have. You're right. And I have to say that I was never, I had never anticipated how successful um, digital manga would be. Although like I, like I mentioned, I think that that still gets most of its money from, uh, from books, but um, I believe that it's, uh, but I mean, obviously people are reading tons of manga online. Uh, yeah, I, honestly, there was a marketing guy who worked for Viz. His name I don't remember. And this is back in like 2002. He was like, he had, he invited, he didn't know about manga, but he knew about marketing. So he invited me and some other, the big manga nerds, the company out to lunch. And he was like, hey, so if you had to pay, if you had the ability to pay to read manga digitally online, what would you think would be reasonable? What would you pay? And, gosh, yeah, just in case you ever thought I was had any brains about what trends would be like, I was like, nah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, well, I don't, I wouldn't want to pay for something that I don't own. I wouldn't want to pay for manga that I don't physically possess and I can't like hug and take to bed with me and stuff like. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I was just kind of like, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I don't honestly, yeah. He honestly. He obviously knew what the hell was going on. Um, although it's although it's whether he could have whether he had the idea that would have caught fire if Viz had pushed for it. Who knows? Because there was a lot of other there was a lot of failed online. There's been a lot of failed online manga things like the J Manga website and the oh wow you know, like yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of obscure attempts to do digital manga that have failed. I mean, it, we can definitely say that. I mean, it's super. I, I buy a lot of manga ebooks because um, that's super convenient. But a lot of those things that are like subscription services, it's just you just got it's just got to be like a, super convenient, right? It's just got to be like the Amazon Kindle, like one thing where you just like, oh, I feel like reading a manga, and then like before you know it, you've bought the manga. You know, if anything where it's like, oh, you got to make a, anything where it's like you got to make a, you got to register, you got to make create a profile. It's just like, fuck it, I'll just go to a scanlation site. You know, I mean, it's. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's a pain. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's possible. There's definitely different ways things could have happened. But in the the truth is that, uh, the, I mean, the publisher, both, Viz, both on the U.S. and the Japanese side, they were always scared of digital. You know, they, they were always cautious. I mean, I don't know if they were just like a short-sighted nerds like me who wanted to collect their manga. But um, they, were, they were always scared of digital. And, uh, you know, they've had various... I mean, you know, Shonen Jump, like once, this is like seven or eight years ago now, but they once printed like a notice in the back of the magazine saying like, please don't read our stuff online. Please don't post our comics online, you know? So they've, they've, it's a crisis. It's been a crisis for them. And I don't know how, I mean, of course now in Japan, there's also all the online manga magazines that are, uh, 
you know, more or less successful. So, Do you think part of the reason that finally pushed their hand into uh, venturing into digital was to meet the demands of the international audience? That's a very good question. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the whole way international licensing works for manga is such a, it's such a pain. I mean, it's so archaic. Like the fact that, you know, like the, the British... The United Kingdom license is different from the American license, right? So that, uh, you know, um, so that you could, I, I don't even know if the, I mean, yeah, just things like that. There's all sorts of weird archaic issues of how things are divided up by country or territory or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's probably, they probably are getting more international sales. But I, if you don't, they, is, you know, gosh, I don't even know. It's embarrassing. I haven't looked. But is the Shonen Jump, the Shonen Jump site that Viz has, the Shonen Jump online magazine, it's all in English, right? They don't have multiple language options? Okay. Well, Shonen, yeah, Viz's Shonen Jump site is only English, but the Manga Plus site has it in English and Spanish. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, they're, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's like the bare beginnings of what they need to do, right? So Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the series that are run in Shonen Jump these days, do you think that they're also made with the international audience more in mind than they were back in the early days before there was a North American Shonen Jump? I think to a certain extent. I think to a certain. I think that for like for like some time now. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know. I know that to a, in some ways the Japanese manga industry is very insular, and they don't. I mean, and at least at various points in time, they've like had a like I don't care whatever happens with international license because it's such a small portion of the pie. Uh, like when we, for instance, when we, uh, you know, Video Girl Eye, uh, Masika, um, Masakazu Katsura, Video Girl Eye, did Video Girl Eye and uh, Zet Man and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, went, like, this is a long time ago, but like, it was like 1999, 2000, he came to Comic-Con. We've been, this is a Comic-Con and we were, first off, we were publishing Video Girl Eye, but we weren't told he was going to be a Comic-Con. He was just there for himself. And we were like, shit, he's there? Go find him. Go bring him over to the biz booth. <laughs> and, uh, and we were like, quick, would you, would you talk to us? And he's like, oh, I wasn't aware Video Girl Eye was being published in English. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I've seen stories of different, like, magaka who, like, are just suddenly surprised that, like, their stuff's in English. So I, I, guess, I guess that's just common. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it might. I mean, it might partly be just because he's a because he's busy and his, his editors shield him from the uh, having to deal with stuff like licensing. So of course, that's not his responsibility. Yeah. Um. But but I mean, but basically, the English market was such a tiny fraction, and but of course now it's probably different. Yeah, and I think that uh, to, answer, to go back to answer your question, I feel that in the last. Uh, in this last in the last twenty year twenty years, the like for instance, Shonen Jump is they've kind of and this might partly be responding responding to different trends in Japan as well, but they've kind of toned down the level of adult material that they'll allow in the magazine. For instance, like in the eighties, it was common to see like female nudity and stuff in the magazine. Yeah. Um, well, that, I mean, with series like Food Wars and Yun and the Haunted Hot Springs, I feel like they still have that quota covered. Yeah, but. Well, I mean that's 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 true, but also like you know you have stuff like Fist of the North Star and Dragon Ball that like back then were able to get away with showing like f- like full frontal like everything. Yeah, well, yeah. Yuna does that too. I'm, do they? I mean, do, well, do do they yeah. do they show nipple? Yeah, that's the real question. <laughs> well, not nipple in the yeah. Uh, the, well, that that's oh well, yeah. No, the, that, the, yeah, that's that's what I'm referring to. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 There's. I mean. Yeah. There's. 
you know, yeah, they're just, uh, and also, I mean, also other, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, there are other weird little things like the fact that, like the fact that, you know, whether, whether or not the pirates in one piece are drinking alcohol or not, <laughs> or, not <you> know. <laughs> um, or like the, uh, the, the, uh, the manji, AKA swastika uh, that used to be on Whitebeard's flag. Um, uh, if I'm remembering the character correctly. Mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that was changed in the original at some point too. It was, yeah, but yeah, but I'm sure that was in response to international pressure as well. I mean, not pressure. I doubt anybody. I doubt anyone was protesting, but they were like, yeah, they they managed to slip out of it without anyone, you know, without before it caused uh, trouble, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, in that case, I think they are thinking more about the international audience. Um. Yeah. So I, I would say that it's. I would say that's 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 fair to say that there's probably more concern for international licensing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also worth mentioning that, like, when when Food Wars, uh, first like got an English release, that like I'm I'm pretty I forget, I f- I forget which one of them made the comment, but I because it's a duo, but I remember I remember one of the creators of Food Wars at first was like, you know, when 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 their stuff was being simultaneously released in English, like through the you know, Digital Weekly showed a jump that, like, you know, they were they were concerned about like the the level of nudity they could still do now that you know their series is being in- released like internationally. Like, I remember they made some sort of comment about that kind of thing, which I thought was interesting. And they did tone down the series from that point for a little while. Like, I remember, like after Food Wars was added to the magazine, it wasn't as gratuitous for quite a few arcs. I think. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I I've only read a little bit of Food Wars, so I, I I'm not I haven't been following its its subtle up and down of, of a cheesecake level. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would, yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that would happen because even at Viz, the censorship would be very inconsistent. Um, like essentially, it was probably this hardest in like the in like around two thousand five, two thousand six, because that's when. In the very first issues of Shonen Jump, we we were things were a little more slippery. But then, like you know, Scholastic started coming back with hard feedback, and uh, also, and we got more like you know, we got more suits in the office. You know, like more more people who were job was to not whose job was to be unfun and to uh, <laughs> to spoil us, well, not let us do anything fun, and to also keep us from getting a massive scandal and lawsuits. Um, and so they, you know, like. For instance, like in the early volumes of uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which I worked, I, well, I only did the, the Stardust Crusaders arc, but um, uh, in the early volumes of the Stardust Crusaders of JoJo, they were really strict. And they're like, well, we had, they basically had someone go through it. They're like, well, here's smoking and here's drinking and uh, to take out the cigarette. And also there's a lot of violence to animals. Yeah, JoJo. didn't Araki didn't have to like redraw some of that stuff? Yeah, that's the amazing part because actually – Iraqi was just told, well, you have to, well, you have to change this if you wanted to get published in the U.S. And we were willing to redraw it ourselves. And he's like, no, no, I'll, I'll redraw it. I'll redraw it. Um, and the interesting thing was he kind of slipped the bound. He, he kind of like he kind of basically redrew it, but made it almost as gross as it was before. <laughs> I think he, I think that was, I think that was his plan because there was OK, just to give one example in the one of the arcs in jojo's there's like a, a scene where there's like a dead dog or like there's a dog that gets ripped apart from the inside by the by the by death 13 i think and they're rocky and we were like oh well look how can we change this let's change the dog to a mouse 
Yeah, people don't. It's still an animal getting tort mutilated, but people don't care about mice as much. Okay, <laughs> for some reason that that was its logic was acceptable. Um, but Araki was like, okay, I'll redraw it. So he drew, he redrew the dog into like a giant mouse. It's like the size of a like a size of a golden retriever. Ooh. It's still like an animal that's huge, but it has like mouse ears. Look at the fucked up mouse mutant jackal creature. Um, it, it just. You know, that's the problem with some censorship is that, like, sometimes the censorship is, like, worse than the original thing, almost, or sometimes just as bad. (laughs) Yeah, it's very, it was interesting. Um, But then, like, basically, just like I said, that then, like, depending on who was working, who was, depending on who the suits at Viz were at the time, what we had to do would change, because, like, then, like, a year later... They were, I was like asking about similar stuff and they were like, eh, well, you know, Jojo isn't selling very well. So it's not like anyone's reading it. It's not like anyone cares. So just don't change anything. <laughs> and uh, those weren't their exact words, but that's essentially what happened. There was like a whole other list of things we had to change. Yeah, like that's right. There's like a, later on when um, you have pet shop in Jojo. Um, I hope you're all enjoying my, my Jojo, my uh, Jojo trivia. Oh, we are. Um, when later on they had pet shop, the bird ripping up some dogs. And at that point they're like, ah, who cares what happens to those dogs? It's like, no one's reading Jojo. Just let the dogs get, wow. get killed. I'm like, <laughs> well, luckily that's changed these days because people are reading Jojo, but it can be uncensored. I know. I love Jojo so much. It's my favorite manga of all time, probably. Um, yeah. I mean, well, Yu-Gi-Oh is up there too, but definitely Jojo is better. I, I have to wonder, and I mean, um, I, I don't know if you can confirm this, but I'm I'm sure like the re-releases of part three are like completely uncensored nowadays, right? Yep. Okay, that's good. That's good, and I'm glad you know because I I they didn't give me comp copies as jerks, so I uh, I, I haven't read them yet. I only I still only have my old copies. I have um I have a uh, Phantom Blood and um, Battle Tendency, but I haven't bought I haven't rebought um, uh, Stardust Crusaders yet. Let alone Diamond is Unbreakable. Oh uh, man, that's coming. That's coming. That's coming out in like the next couple of months here. I think it is. I know. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Although honestly, I like the I like Stardust Crusaders the best. But but that's just because that's the first one that I uh, I read. But also, I, I like. Uh, I mean, yeah, I like all the travel aspect. I, I thought that I think that's a freaking great story structure, and it also has a lot of horror. It has a lot of horror mm-hmm. in it. Oh yeah. Um, I guess all of JoJo has a lot of horror, but uh. But you know, yeah, Stardust Crusaders has this very like '80s uh, splatter vibe to it, which is which I enjoy. Yeah, I love how every part of JoJo's has a distinct feel to it in terms of genre. But there's always these horror elements to it that make it so fun and appealing too. Like Araki really loves to go full on with like creepiness and gore and craziness. Yeah, it's one of my yeah. It's such an incredible manga. Yeah, I loved his book on his book on the craft of manga too. If you, if you haven't read that, I suddenly I suddenly need to buy a copy of that. It's really good. It's an excellent book. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think we have a couple more questions about Jump. Back in 2013, when you wrote in your House of a Thousand Monk column on Shonen Jump Alpha, you said that you think Shonen Jump should become like a buffet of manga, where so subscribers could pick and choose from all the manga available and jump and read their favorites. And like at the time, I think a lot of us thought that would just like be a dream. Like that would be close to happening. But now this is new Shonen Jump app, the Manga Plus app, like that's basically happened. It's like a reality. So I was wondering how you feel about these new services. And do you think this is the ideal way for fans to experience Shonen Jump manga? Well, I got to confess that I haven't used uh, the new Shonen Jump app. 
Um, I haven't, I haven't really checked it out. Um, I mean, I, it sounds like it's awesome. You know, okay. If I'm just gonna, I'd like to move the goalposts now and say, oh, you should allow all, you should make all the Shonen Jump content available digitally. It should be like Marvel Unlimited. (laughs) And then, and then, uh, but, um, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's great that they're doing it. I hope it's really successful for them. And I was wondering, what do you think that Viz and Shonen Jump should go from here? Like, now that we're at this level, where like pretty much every series in the Japanese Shonen Jump is being simul-published in English and Spanish worldwide. Like, Jump is at its most accessible, but where do you think it should go from here? Oh, man. If I, well, if I had the answer to that question, then I would be, uh, I'd probably be calling up my, you know, my friends at Viz and, uh, annoying them with my suggestions, but I, I, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, on the one hand there, there's just these stories that are really good, you know, and then, but the other hand, there's so many factors of, uh, how people, you know, of how people read and, uh, get their media and, uh, you know, of how, what the, like the maximum pop, what, of how you can like, I mean, I'd like to think that they can increase the visibility of manga still and, you know, raise the baseline, uh, raise the baseline awareness of manga. Um, I'm going to say that I think it's really bizarre that some of the most popular manga right now are superhero manga, like, you know, essentially, you know, Um, because it's sort of like, you know, of course they're following trends, but it's, yeah, like essentially the Marvel, the Marvel, Marvel universe revival boom of the last 10 years. It's all so freaking popular that, now there's, you know, manga. I mean, manga characters are always like, you know, Goku is always a superhero, right? Manga heroes are always sort of superheroes, obviously. But now there's actually superheroes. So, it, so in one sense, it's kind of interesting to me that they're that essentially manga is copying American comics in that sort of blatant way. Um, but uh, I would like, I mean, I mean, yeah, I would love, I'd love manga to be more successful and popular. And for me, the whole. Um, but if I knew how, then I, I then I would have then I'd be I'd be trying I'd be sharing that mystical answer. I mean, for me, it's all about the comics. I don't really, you know, I don't really care as much about the uh, the anime and video games, even though I used to edit a video game magazine. But I just, you know, I mean, to me, what's interesting is how the comics are made and the the funky aspects of the creator that gets put into the comics yeah, and, and also, and how they're able to work these mm-hmm. and how they're able to do these like stories that are arcs that are successful and exciting, even though the arcs can be so long, you know, I mean, how do you keep one, how does one piece stay fresh after like a jillion years, you know, <laughs> I mean, whereas Jojo is like a sort of a shapeshifter that keeps taking on new bodies. And it's really like a dozen different, it's really like a dozen different comics, but it's all one comic and the, you know, it's just, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would never would have dreamed that we'd be in a universe where, like, the Dragon Ball Broly movie could be like a could be like one of the most the, could like make actual money in the U.S. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's and be playing at like lots of theaters. That's insane. Yeah. Um. Oh, you know. So. So yeah, I think that on the, on the one hand, in some ways, manga is more popular than I ever thought it would have been. I never would have dreamed that like I would that I could just randomly go on the internet and people would know what Dragon Ball or JoJo is. But um, so I don't kind of don't know where to go from here. Um, uh, m- manga beam directly into your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but would it be? But then, is it manga? What is it? Is it like? 
I mean, would it be like, because that's one of the things that I always, that's been curious to me. It's like the fight between manga and animation, right? Because there's, in some ways, manga is so easy. And translating between manga and an anime is so easy because, you know, it's already like a storyboard. But on the other hand, there's something just very different. It's a very different experience about watching something. It's about watching something where you don't, because, you know, because it's manga, you control the pace. As fast as you can look at something and read and turn the pages is how fast it's happening. Whereas with an, with an anime, it's a more curated experience because, of course, you're like, you know, you're only, you're, I mean, like, which can be good because it's just, it's, it's more exciting and there's sound and, you know, it's, uh, freaking everything is moving. But on the other hand, you know, it, it could be like Dragon Ball, this classically crappy old dragon i mean adorable but crappy old <laughs> dragon ball z's where it's like where you're like expanding like a 20 page comic into like a 30 minute episode and you're like oh stand around here and some sometimes eight pages <laughs> or eight panels or something I, I forget what it was yeah like eight there was an episode that only adapted eight panels of training <laughs> oh god um so i mean yeah i think that's the thing about anime is that like to me it lives or dies by how well it adapts the material so yeah i mean what i care about is the original material but i mean i wonder i mean if i'm going really far into the future i mean i wonder if there's going to be tools for people to create original content animation more rapidly you know more easily with a smaller team um but at the same time um the same time, though, like I said, is is an animation ever going to be the same? It's never going to be exactly the same as something where you control the pace and the flow yourself, with a, like with a comic. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, but I have to say, I, I'm surprised. I mean, it's interesting there haven't been. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, even though, um, even though, like you know, people are mostly even though people are reading manga more on phones and tablets or whatever, that there's not so much. You're not, I, there's not really like a lot of like super successful, like for Yonkoma type manga, right? There's not really a lot of like phone formatted manga that have been hits in the U, at least in the US. It seems like people are still sticking to like the page as like a, as the like the delivery format, if you know what I mean. Yeah. There haven't been any breakout hits that are like really meant to be read as web comics and really meant to be read digitally. Like everything that's been a hit is like something that, you know, you can read in print and it's like the same experience as reading it digital. Yeah. I mean, it's so yeah, like, I mean, like way, way back, like 20 years ago and, or like, you know, Scott McCloud did those books on comics, um, on like what the future on like the history of comics and the future of comics. There's like understanding comics, but then he did like reinventing comics, which is this book about like web comics and he's all like, well, with the web, you can have comics in any shape. You can have comics that are like giant tapestries that flow in any, dire- any, dire- any direction, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the, the weird, the funny thing is there really hasn't been that much of that. I mean, occasionally you can find those things, but they're kind of just like experimental things. They're like, oh, that's funny. Ha ha. That's kind of, that's original. But in mostly comics people are reading, they're, they're still, you know, they're formatted. They're still page formatted. Maybe now the tablets are so big. Um, I mean, I do all my drawing on my iPad. It's it's not an issue because that's still page size. You know, it's perfect for reading manga. It's going to be interesting to see how manga evolves and how Shonen Jump evolves going forward. But I think a lot of the state of where it is today, like the state where it can be available so much worldwide, is like in large part thanks to the efforts of the original team behind the print Shonen Jump, including you, Jason, and like really 
getting the Shonen Jump brand across the shores and like really giving it a foothold to grow into what it's become. Oh, thanks, Lum. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy I was there and I'm happy I could help in whatever little way I I could. And I'm really, really excited to see like where what's going to happen with Manga Plus and the new Shonen Jump app and see like what we'll see happen to Shonen Jump going forward. Like what will be its new form? Because now that it's not in the confines of a magazine, like where can it go? Where can it experiment from here? And that'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, well. But now I think we'll wrap up with a few fan Q&As that we got off Twitter. Oh, fan Q&A. Exciting. Mm-hmm. And you answered the first question asked by Nick Rowe already on uh, Twitter about who was behind Bobo's license getting approved. But I wanted to extrapolate from your answer, like... That, that you said maybe it was requested by people on the Shueisha side. Were there any manga brought over that Viz licensed that were specifically requests by Shueisha to be licensed and, you know, promoted in the U.S.? Yeah, there was quite a few. I don't remember all of them, but there was many cases where Viz was, um, basically Viz would have to publish a series in English, either because um, the uh, editors in Japan felt it was like an important series that should be published. <laughs> like, this is a classic. You have to publish, you know, what such and such. Or like, um, because they were doing it sort of as a favor to the artist. Like, maybe they were having they were having some art disagreement with the artist in Japan, and they were like, well, hey, what, wouldn't you like to see your series published in English in the U.S.? Wouldn't that be prestigious? And then they'd be like, oh, well, I guess I can accept, I guess I don't need that raise as much as I wanted or something. I don't know. But yeah, there were really were concerns like that. Um, I'll give you one example um, that I can remember. It was uh, Saint Seiya. Oh. Knight, A.K.A. Knights of the Zodiac. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, because um, now I know, of course, the it was out in the anime was out in um, the U.S., so there was some tie-in, but um, I'm pretty sure that was one of the titles that essentially the um, was pushed by the Shueisha side. Because you know, there's a lot of these older titles, especially that that we we in the office look at it and we'd be like, well, this is this is a classic title, but the art is just so old, it's not going to sell. And then the funny thing is, of course, then they'd say, oh, but you have to publish this. It's obligatory. We don't care if you lose money. You have to publish this manga. I mean, then that would be really it'd be great because because then all the, like, St. Sanders and the office would be like, yes, we're forced to publish St. Thea. Oh, so awful. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and uh, but the thing is, though, that um, this is all before, as after the economic crash, then basically there wasn't as much leeway for these to publish these titles that weren't selling as well so i believe we never did publish the final arc of saint Seiya. no actually the the entirety of saint Seiya was published in by viz what wait they did publish the, the hades arc yep. yeah oh crud i didn't realize oh i'm so i don't I, oh, i'm so embarrassed <laughs> yeah well i know there was other titles okay maybe i'm taking more on the um on the shogakukan and other side but like yeah there's a lot of titles that were canceled like that bell uh, Kuro, Kurohime, um, you know, those were two that I worked on. What wasn't Zatch Bell in particular because um, Shigaku Khan was in the middle of a scuffle with uh, uh, with uh, with Raiku Makoto in particular? Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's true. There was also that. Yes, he moved to Kodansha. So they probably they were probably like, screw you. We're not publishing your series. It wasn't selling anyways. Oh, it broke my heart as a kid when Viz stopped publishing Zatch Bell. Three because volumes. I was looking forward. Three. Well. 
Well, I know there was more than that. Was it there? Was, it stopped at twenty five, and Zatchbell has like thirty something volumes. So it was like yeah, there was like yeah, it wasn't just three, but it was pretty close. You're oh right. wow, okay. yeah. So like, I don't think they even finished the Faust arc. Like they didn't, they did not finish the Faust arc. They didn't get to clear it out. It was it broke my heart. Uh, that makes me sad. Yeah, it made me, made me sad too because I like I enjoyed that spell. It took me actually it took me a while to warm 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 up to it, but uh, eventually I really liked it. Yeah, so there was some, there was a lot of factors like that, and I don't remember, but I suspect that Bobo Bo was one of those because although it's not old, I think it's just one of those things that's just so weird looking. I don't know, you know, I'm not, I, I think there's probably, probably would have been a lot of skepticism about whether it would do well. Bobo was kind of weird because like, I know the anime, I, I assume it did well for Toonami. I, I remember it, it did well for Toonami and Cartoon Network. Like it was a highly rated program with like the demographic they wanted on Toonami, but like the manga, I guess just never did that well. But it was so weird how they released the manga because they started off with that standalone volume that had the Halekalani arc. And then later they, you know, started releasing it from volume 11 onwards, but they retitled it as volume one. And they started in like the middle of the Giga arc. And so it's like you kind of lost the audience because you you're starting in the middle of a storyline. Like there are 10 volumes of material that you have not like released yet. And you're publishing it in, they publish one chapter a month when they ran it in Shonen Jump. So they only got through like the first two volumes worth of it. And that meant that the releases of the graphic novels came out so slowly so, and then after they took it out of Shonen Jump, you know, they only published three more volumes. So, like, I really feel like their release strategy for Bobo Bo really shot in the foot. Because I think it could have done well, because it did have an audience that was watching it on Tanami. And now I would say, these days, it's a cult hit. People look back on that yeah. fondly. But mm, See, see Bobo Bo always interested me because, uh, and, I, and I'm reading, um, I'm reading this straight from Wikipedia because uh, I guess somebody asked about Bobo Bo at like what was it here uh, at Anime Expo or something in 2008. Uh, it says uh, when asked about why previous volumes were not being published at Anime Expo 2008, uh, this said it was due to content, quote unquote. So, and uh, I oh. I remember reading a, a reading like Bobo Bo like the beginning of Bobo Bo through like scanlation sites like way 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 back back in the day. And I I vividly remember Bobo Bo being introduced tied to a cross, I think. So like oh God, so yeah. I'm I don't know if maybe it's because of like stuff like that that maybe they didn't start from the beginning or I don't know. It was it was interesting. Yeah, I uh, I'm afraid I'm not I've I've never really read that much Bobo Bo. So I, I can't I can't guess what the content issues were, but there could have been any number of things. You know, there could have been any number of weird, edgy humor or sacrilegious stuff, or like just too much poop poop humor, or, or I don't I don't know. Yeah. I I also remember seeing or hearing from somebody that like that Yoshio Sawai in particular also requested that they started Volume Eleven, but I also I also could be remembering that wrong, and I I don't have a source on that. So I've heard that rumor that's too. Po- that's possible. But it's interesting to me to hear that series like Saint Seiya were published on the behest of Shueisha. And I'm grateful that they did that because I love Saint Seiya. Uh, my, my, I'm glad that I was able to read it all. 
uh, and it's still available at least digitally from Viz. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that that's out there because like you can't watch all the anime legally in English. So there's at least one way to experience the story. And from what I hear, like every like possible thing related to Saint Seiya like released over here has like some kind of issue in one way or another. Yeah, so I'm very grateful that Viz did publish it all because other attempts to release anything Saint Seiya over here just have not done well. Which is a real shame considering Saint Seiya is so popular in other territories internationally, like in Latin America and Europe, but just it never caught on in North America. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. just... I mean, essentially, because it's the U.S. was such a closed market that didn't, and Americans, I mean, they just didn't, they had like, or American media had its immune system up against any foreign, quote unquote, you know, media. So you'd never see like foreign television of any kind in the U.S. in the 80s or, or most of the 90s, you know, and and the same for comics, really. So unfortunately, the U.S. has missed out on a lot of these great anime that were, from the 70s and 80s and got these great anime and manga that were licensed in so many other countries you know like in in the middle east and latin america and europe and uh, you know and china and it just yeah um i mean the u.s is just like a late, the late comer to the it's like i mean like you know i there's apparently marvel comics started scouting the the japan as a market for comics in like the 70s but and uh but they were like going to like they were trying to sell it's, you know, Spider-Man in Japan. And they're like, what? There's already comics over here. <laughs> like, we've we've come to this, this this land, if you thought it was virgin territory, but there's already comics, you know? I mean, so so compared to other parts of the world, just always, I've had just had a more good fortune i get i guess in that in that one way to to have more um to have more manga and, and anime you know relative to the u.s where it had to overcome so many more barriers of indifference and uh you know the u.s corporations yeah especially for a lot of the older titles like some 80s titles like saint santa city hunter like it, it probably definitely helped that those titles came out in other territories much earlier than they arrived in the u.s yeah totally yeah because i mean yeah, because tastes, you know, tastes change, right? I mean, of course, you know, they're, they're, both of those are very, uh, they're they really show their age now, you know, stylistically. Mm, pretty much, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully stuff like Fist of the North Star maybe gets another look at somewhere down the run. Yeah. Yeah, it... it's not going to be from Shonen Jump, though, because they, that artist, like, really pissed, cut all, he really, like, burned the bridge, you know, so it would have to be another another company printing. Yeah, it. I guess that's true. Oh, man. I wonder if that's why it hasn't uh, hasn't been released uh, again here. Probably part of the reason. Yeah, I mean they. I think um, they just effed it up when they tried with the Raijin. And you, you know, did you see the Fist of the North Star Master Edition, the one that was in full color in American comics format? Mm, I, I remember seeing that around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they just were operating on. Uh, they just had bad ideas. <laughs> right? They thought they're like you know. I mean they were like. I don't mean this. I don't mean the original create. I don't mean creating the comic, but I mean just of how they would market it in the U.S. That you know, they're like, well, of course, American comics should be in color and they should be this size and format, you know. And so that's what they tried to do, you know. But but you know, honestly, that was one of the big things that we discovered at Viz is that um, I mean, it's a little different now, but throughout the '90s and 2000s. Fist is always trying to be like, oh, comic stores, once you buy more manga, please, comic stores, please. And the comic stores were like, no, we don't, you know, they're just, we're, it was, 
people who were a fan of pre-existing superhero comics, they never became manga fans in mass because they didn't like, they just didn't, they, were, they, are, they knew what they wanted and it wasn't manga. And the store owners who were also superhero fans just would not also, they, yeah, they were also like just not, I mean, obviously some of them were really smart and liked a variety of comics, but ultimately we never converted those people. We never converted those old superhero fans. They just, did we just, you know, you just had to develop new fans, right? You just had to develop like new people who were like younger and didn't have like the prejudice against manga or just the over the, the comforting familiarity with superhero comics, you know? And, um, so Viz, so and that, then so Viz went. It's, they just did an end around around that whole thing and went to the bookstores and the magazine stands and digital. And now you know, I mean, I say nowadays that there's although there's still a few diehard superhero fans. There's, there's a little I, more. I feel like the shoes on the other foot uh, in terms of that, where it's like I, I constantly see prejudice towards like, like it's 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 superhero comics, but people like to categorize it as just like western comics in general when it's like well you know there's more than just superhero stuff you know yeah there's definitely two factions going around that's very true you're you're totally right yeah i mean because i definitely i mean i love a lot of you know a lot of non-japanese comics too and i mean i love a lot of indie comics and just like really you know just uh weird stuff like Fantagraphics books publishes and you know european comics but yeah you're right there's definitely also a lot of manga fans who are just as just as like closed-minded as American comics fans, and they won't read anything that that isn't, uh, you know, they won't read anything that isn't manga. Well, I think that uh, the new generation of comics readers who are going out to stores or discovering stuff online, who are into like su- American superheroes and Japanese manga and discovering stuff like My Hero Academia and Naruto and stuff, I think like in the future, like there'll there'll be less division and there'll be more like unity between these fandoms. Yeah, because I, I mean, personally speaking, like, I'm I'm not as interested in, like, just superhero comics in general outside of, like, maybe one or two characters. But, like, you know, I'm, I'm also at that point in my, in, in my comics fandom in, in particular, where it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm up, I'm up for reading anything. Like, I, I, I like, I like going outside the bounds of, like, just manga, you know, every once in a while. Like, I, I, I like, I like just seeking out different new comics in general. Whereas, like, 10 years ago, like, I never would have felt that way. I was always just kind of comfortable staying in my manga bubble. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, you never know what you'll discover. Like, I have to say, I mean, I, I liked manga before I liked superhero comics i mean I, I still much prefer i still i still prefer manga of course but <laughs> but uh i mean it wasn't until i was in my mid-20s that i like read some of the very old like the original like marvel comics and like the big collections like the marvel masterworks and i remember when i was reading the first um the very first like couple issues of spider-man i was like holy crap there's all this is all like this stuff this is all like a sort of a parody of the superhero genre all this stuff where like spider-man is like trying to like he gets he goes on like a talk show and they <laughs> and they like he, they're like how, how should we pay you and he's like oh just write the check to spider-man and then he can't get the check cash at the bank it's because it's spider-man this is like this is this is funny and uh, i was i did you know it's i'm like it's crazy that there was like self-referential comics like 50 plus years ago that's nuts <laughs> yeah spider-man spider-man was this is definitely that exception for me when you know you're a superhero that basically quits in the middle of uh trying to uh, pursue a criminal in literally like the what was it like the second issue or something like like the very original run yeah. like that, that 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 blew my mind when i first read that like oh okay you just 
he he could just do that. All right. <laughs> it's oddly relatable. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I mean, because there's been a lot of superhero parodies since then. Like, I remember I used to love The Tick and stuff like that. But, I mean, then when I read, actually read the original Spider-Man, I was like, hell, this is already, I was like, it's, it goes back all the way to the freaking 1960s. <laughs> Very weirdly ahead of its time, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me how people look at One Punch Man as like a subversion of shonen uh, power escalation and like making fun of shonen tropes. When you look back at the original Dragon Ball and you also have like jokes about like uh, Tin Shen Han is doing this aftermish technique and stuff. And like it's just this ridiculous, it turns into this ridiculous gag. You're like, oh, now I'm behind you. And oh, now I'm behind you. <laughs> or later during the Piccolo fight, Piccolo is trying to charge up and Goku just attacks him while he's charging up because like... How, you're taking too long. It's like, <laughs> like I, comics that I think have always been self-aware and have played had a good sense of humor about themselves. But it just depends on what you're exposed to at the end of the day, which is which is why you you know you have a lot of like My Hero Academia fans who you know who will say like, oh, Deku is a great shonen protagonist because he actually shows emotion when like you know you have characters dating. Far, as far back as Fist of the North Star, you know, Kenshiro is openly shedding tears over different tragedies and, and whatnot. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. Like, haven't you ever read, read One Piece? Characters are like crying rivers of, like the drop of a hat, for God's sake. Huh. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Sniper of My Heart who asks, who do you think the target audience of Shonen Manga is and has it changed over the years? Um, well, I mean, primary, I think it's 14 year olds early because that's the standard, the most, that's gotta be, I've got, that's gotta be the standard age of readers in Japan at least, because that's the standard age of protagonists, right? Um, and, uh, I think it's probably mostly, it's probably mostly males, but at the same time, um, it obviously there's even obviously for like a, a generation they've had a lot of fan service for for women or for androphilic readers as well you know there's i mean when yeah ever i remember once i mean it's even older than this of course but the moment i saw like naruto and sasuke kissing in like chapter two or three of naruto i'm like well yeah they this is <laughs> like well we've entered a new era of shonen manga they're really they're really they're really targeting they're really playing up the the boys love <laughs> I think Shonen Jump has always had a very strong female audience, uh, just as active as his male audience. Look, even looking back at these early issues of Shonen Jump, there are just as many women writing in and sending in letters and fan art as there are men. In fact, oftentimes even more so. So I think that women have always been just a huge part of the Shonen Jump audience. And I think that's a huge part of like its appeal and like why it has the reach that it has, that it is appealing for audiences of all genders and for a very wide age range. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that like, yeah, obviously, you know, the the like we, we we're aware of like who the target demographic is, but obviously it has a huge wide appeal to you know you know a, a bigger audience than just a, a couple of 14 year old kids yeah it's funny that a magazine that has the word boys in the title could have said it has has probably a wider women female audience than american superhero comics on average yeah i you know you're totally right um it's totally got a large demographic and uh certainly a lot of adults continuing to read it as well such as ourselves which is interesting because, like, you, you see, like, 
you see like series like Gintama, you know, constantly riff on like how the after a certain age, like it's not socially acceptable to like read Shouldn't Jump anymore or whatever. Like, oh, I should have stopped reading Jump when I was like like, like ten years ago or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to bring up Gintama because there are definitely series in Shonen Jump that have a larger female audience than they do a male audience. Gintama is a, such a series. Haikyuu uh-huh. is such a series. Even One Piece, a few years back, when they were like pulling like the demographics breakdown, there was actually a slightly higher female readership of One Piece than there were male audience. It's really interesting. Yeah, part of it might be, I think, that more women just read more than men in yeah. general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, unfortunately, I mean, I, that's just a general impression. So I may be, I may be totally off base, but I, I mean, I, I, I have the impression, that's my overall impression. Um, and, uh, I mean, even like with super, yeah, with superhero comics as well, there's always been, you know, I mean, I, yeah, the, the female fan, you know, when, fans who aren't males are just, you know, they're always, unfortunately, they're, you know, typically they're a, side sidelined or not uh or not noticed you know but um at the same time you know it's it yeah the jump the jump editors and artists are obviously also putting in giving putting in the aware that they're there and putting in fan service to a lesser or a greater degree and our final question comes from animate sam who asks is being a manga editor its own shonen story and if so how well <laughs> uh I mean, I just, I did, I did start out by, I just started out with a very low power level by editing <laughs> like, uh, editing like a terrible um, night Darkstalkers spinoff manga for Viz, and then I gradually worked my way up to like more powerful opponents. I mean, of course, they're actually friends. Not a, manga are friends, not opponents. Like uh, Tenshi Muyo, and uh, then finally I got to work on Shonen Jump titles. So. I think that that is about, so yes, I did have a little bit of power escalation. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure your different projects starting out seem like enemies at first and then they turn out to be your friends. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. I always been fascinated by the process of, of making manga and making comics. Um, I mean, I've only done a couple of comics myself as a creator um, but I'm always, you know, I, I mean, I love comics on principle and I, you know, I love to read them. And even though, you know, even though English language manga, quote unquote, editors don't really do, you know, I mean, even though we don't do, you know, we don't, we don't really do creative work in the way that Japanese editors do, or even editors at a American uh, comic book publishing company who may be like have an advisorial capacity or editor proof or capacity over the artists they work with. Um, yeah, I've always been fascinated by the process of um, of making manga, and um, I love manga that are about manga. You know, I, mean, I guess that's a certain level of meta, self-referential meta awareness. You know, I mean, the obvious one is the obvious big, big problematic one is Bakuman, but then there's so many other manga that are that are from that perspective as well. You know, uh, like um, like have you read Blue? Um, oh, what's it? Blue? Oh, what's uh, the name blue, of manga? Blue Blazes, blue? I think. Blue Blazes. Thank you. Yeah. That whole artist does such great stuff, and uh, there's been so many other manga about, about about the perspective. That's actually why I started working on the mangaka tabletop game, is because I wanted to do something that was sort of fun and had that sort of like self sort of self parodying thing, where it's like, oh, this your fiery spirit, can you become a super great shonen artist, you know, or whatever, um, or shoujo artist. 
yeah, there's I've, I noticed that there are so many different uh, like, you know, there there's more than just Bakuman out there. Like there there are other manga that focus on, you know, manga as a profession. But like, unfortunately, um, I don't think any of the rest of those are available officially in English, which is a shame. Well, very soon we'll have a blank canvas, uh, which is Akiko Higashimura's autobiographical manga about her experiences in art school and becoming a mangaka, which I'm very much looking forward to because I love that work. That's true, yeah. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah, I've read that in Japanese. They're translating it as Kaku Kaku Shika Jika. Yeah, I read that. I wrote that one, that one for A House of a Thousand Manga, but I, I'm so happy that they're licensing it. Yeah, I, um, I mean, you know, if you read a lot of manga, I think it's possible i think one of the things that i love about manga is the the and that i don't find it in american comics as much sometimes of course is the spiritedness of it all and i you know the whole idea that show that i quoted somebody who said that like oh deku is the only shonen manga artist character who shows emotion that's so silly because i mean when i think of manga when i think of the manga that i like like um i don't it's not like the sort of cold masamune shiro type manga that's sort of intellectual with boobs you know or whatever it's like the manga that's very that's it's the manga where you know where it's the protagonist's heart's really on their sleeve and it really has this heavy emotion. I mean, that's even what I think that's great about Zatch Bell, for example. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I, you know, when I'm thinking, when I'm, I mean, just to like tie it back and make it into just, I mean, when I when I'm like when I'm thinking when I'm you know thinking about my own emotions and thoughts, I've read I've read enough manga that like you know I'm. I'm thinking about these things in the perspective of, of manga characters and manga characters are sort of, they sort of like live our best lives and that they have these, you know, they, these tears rolling, running down their faces. They're like running to chase the sunset, you know, like these highs and lows that are of emotion and drama. I mean, and that's what, you know, that's what you kind of get out of, that's what you kind of hope to get out of any kind of uh, fictional experience is that you get to live other lives. Right. And you get to like feel other, and you get to like feel the emotions of other people that probably don't exist. And you know, that they, but then these things also affect how you, you know, they affect how you view your own emotions, you know. And uh, this is a very broad topic, of course. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about manga, that I've always continued to get, get from manga, you know, is the highs and the lows and they sort of a emotional a way of looking at the world emotionally. And, I've, you know, and of course it's different for every artist, but... Um, but you know, this is some. This is just a way that I feel that in general, I can say that manga has has, has changed my life. I think both of us you feel the same way because yeah, I mean, my, uh, the emotional journey and like the different like ideas, perspectives that manga can like elicit in you is just it's truly an experience, and it's definitely affected my life in a big way as well. Oh yeah, same here. Yeah, but. That does it with our fan Q&As. And I think that about wraps us up for the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason, and sharing so many awesome stories about the history of Shonen Jump, your experiences working on it, and so many other cool tidbits and history things that we didn't know about. Lum, Colton, thank you so much for having me on. It was a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably have to have you on for, like, Zatch Bell or Yu-Gi-Oh! at some point. Because it, it feels like you have a lot to say about some of those titles in particular, and I'd like to talk to you about those at some point uh, later on the show. Yeah, if you'd like to, go for it. Let's uh, set it up. I, I mean, yeah, I've, I love Yu-Gi-Oh! and Zatch. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going through, like, my first read-through Yu-Gi-Oh! because it's something I really want to cover on the podcast before the end of the year this year, so... 
So yeah, that's been an experience. Um, but no, yeah, like Lum said, thank you so much for coming on. This this is this was really great. No problem. Thank you both. Um, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun, and uh, yeah. Um, if you ever want to talk to me about any other stuff, I'll try do my best to. I'll do my best to you know dust the cobwebs off and remember. <laughs> um, I guess, but before we like get into wrapping up the show, uh, if you just want to tell everybody where they can find you on the internet. Oh yeah, well I'm Mockman at Twitter. That's M O C K M A N. Uh, I'm also at Mockman Press at, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, and Mockman.com, the website. And uh, you can get our games, a cartooner and mangaka from Japanime Games, um, and they're also on Twitter. And uh, um, and yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, we'll definitely leave uh, links in the show notes for uh, everything related to uh, to Jason here. Um, but yeah, I think we're just going to go ahead and uh, wrap up the episode. And that is going to do it for the show. Uh, again, big special thanks to Jason Thompson for coming on the show and talking with us. Uh, we definitely learned a lot about the uh, the inner workings of the print Shonen Jump and how that got started. Uh, as well as Jason's incredible experiences with a lot of different people and manga artists and whatnot. Definitely go follow Jason on Twitter, support his stuff, go go buy his board games, uh, go read his old uh, House of a Thousand Manga articles on uh, ANN. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, some of those articles. Uh, I don't think I've read all of them, but uh, I definitely remember reading some of those way back in the day there. But uh, no, yeah, uh, hopefully we can have him on the show again sometime. And uh, yeah, um, again, that's going to do it for the show. Uh, just a few things before we head out. Obviously, just some plugs and whatnot. Uh, we mentioned last episode that uh, we started up a, uh, a survey. Uh, once again, another survey uh, to kind of gauge interest in, uh, in a Patreon. Um, so, you know, just in case you may not know... Uh, Lum and I, uh, ever since our last survey episode, have uh, been kind of going back and forth about maybe starting a Patreon for the show. Um, but before we make any kind of decision, we kind of wanted to gauge interest from our listeners and uh, and see just, you know, whether anybody would support it, uh, you know, how much they'd be willing to pledge and, you know, what kind of maybe re- what kind of rewards they would want and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you've ever wanted to support Manga Mavericks through a Patreon or support us financially in any way you can uh please take this survey uh this is the best way to let us know just uh how much you want to or how much you can or how much you're able to uh and whatnot uh it'll basically help us make a decision in the long run as to whether we want to start one or not uh so yeah we will leave a link for that survey in the show notes for this episode and for the show notes of uh the next few episodes uh, I think over the course of the month here, um, I don't think we have an end date for that survey yet. We're going to probably leave it up for uh, for as long as we can here. Probably no more than a month, I would say. Um, we'll definitely let you guys know when, uh, when the end date for the survey is coming. But yeah, uh, that'll be in the show notes for the episode for anybody who wants to take that. Uh, if you do take it, we, we very much appreciate it. Um, so with that out of the way, I think we can maybe kind of start getting our normal plugs running here. So uh, if you want to follow my friend and co-host Lum Ramayasha, go follow them on Twitter at Lum Ramayasha, as well as read their um, read their reviews on alt-comic.com. 
as well as check out their newest episode of At Movies, where uh, him and V-Lord got to go see uh, Fate Stay Night, Heaven's Field 2, Lost Butterfly. Uh, so if you're a fan of the uh, of the Fate franchise, definitely go check out that episode of the podcast. I'm sure it'll be very interesting to hear what they thought about that movie. I th- I'm pretty sure V-Lord is a pretty huge fan of the Fate franchise, and I think, I think Lum is too, if I remember correctly. So uh, that might be an interesting episode to listen to. But uh, no, yeah, as for me... I'm Colton. You can follow me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I host a few other podcasts such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, which is on a sort of an unfortunate, uh, indefinite hiatus. But even so, you know, we still have a huge backlog of episodes that you can listen to over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. If you're a fan of Gintama, check it out. Or if you're a fan of Detective Conan, Case Closed, whatever you want to call it, uh, go listen to One Podcast Prevails at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, it's a podcast about Conan that I record with my friend Doctor over at the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast. So uh, I really enjoy recording that show in particular. So if you want to go listen to that, I would really appreciate it. Um, but as for Manga Mavericks and All Comic, you can find every episode of our podcast over at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us on uh, Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks, as well as MangaMavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks. Uh, we post uh, different excerpts of the podcast, such as different news pieces, uh, whatever manga we talk about, our reviews and whatnot. Uh and, uh, you know, even our interviews, like our interview with Jason Thompson this episode, hopefully that'll be up on the YouTube at some point, as well as some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything about um, the manga, the podcast. Uh, do you have a question for Jason Thompson? Uh, you know, is there anything you want to know about uh, about the print show to jump? Or uh, do you want to do you want to know more about his favorite manga? Uh, if you have any questions for Jason or, or anything like that, uh, we'll save them for the next time he's on the show, uh, and we'll read them on the show, as well as any emails about, again, manga, the podcast, any general topics like that. Uh, send, send us those emails over at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever people call it. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show. Yeah, please go do that if you so wish. But uh, yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode. Again, uh, I really enjoyed this episode. I really loved having Jason on. uh, So if he's listening, thank you, Jason, for coming on. Um, But uh, this has been episode 82 of the podcast. And we will see you guys next time for episode 83. Bye, guys. Bye.